Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. The whole kneeling thing in the NFL, you got guys saying that they're going to do it. I'm seeing all these baseball players now, different teams. Last night watching baseball, you got the Reds kneeling, the A's, the Giants. A lot of teams are kneeling. Athletes are kneeling. In your league here, you're the chairman of this thing. Uh, is that going to be allowed if the women want to take a knee during the anthem? Uh, it, what's the policy on that for you guys? Well, if it was up to me, I'd say no. If you can't respect our national anthem, get the hell out of the country. Then that's the way I feel. Of course, I'm old-fashioned, so I'm, I'm only going to say what I feel. Uh, I think there's a way that you you protest, and there's a way you don't protest. You don't protest against the flag, and you don't protest against this country who's given you the opportunity to make a living playing a sport that uh, you never thought would would happen. So I, I don't want to hear all the crap. You want to try it, try it. You don't. It's okay. And welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast. It is the 29th of July, year of our Lord, 2020. And that was Mike Dicka. And I think Mike Dicka's spot on. Good show today. Going to do some Portland violence, some shootings on vehicles. we got Austin. We have a Colorado. Media didn't cover it very much because, you know, we really have a serious problem with these protesters thinking they can just do whatever the fuck they want. And then we got a short woke section, but uh, going off of the beginning here uh, with Ditka, the, the NFL has just lost their fucking shit. Uh, when I finished my script late last night, I was getting ready to go to bed and I clicked on a link, and this is what it said. That rhymed, by the way. NFL end zones will bear end racism and take it takes all of us messages and home openers. So basically, the beginning of the season, um, we're not going to have a good product because we never do. They don't work out anymore. And with uh, Operation um, COVID shit, they're not doing hardly anything now because the one of the baseball teams got all the like 16 people got covid so they're gonna not do a lot of you know practicing it's not gonna be a good product hasn't been since they did the new collective bargaining everybody's a football fan could say that you know a lot of pulled hamstrings and strained butt muscles and just a shitload of good god you're getting paid millions you can't do your damn job so that's bad but now we're going to have two national anthems, BLM shoved down our neck, a Marxist group. I'm, I'm not watching. I will not watch. In fact, I'm so frustrated, I haven't even done my you know football season review like I do each year because I don't even know I'm going to watch. It seems like all they talk about is social media or social justice, excuse me, so... Had to do that up front. Then, then you know, I, I thought it was good to go back to the old days of doing a primer to make us try to understand a podcast, you know, why we are as fucked up as we are. And I thought this was great. This is really long. 
But this guy is serious. We regret to inform you that they're trying to cancel Discovery Channel's Shark Week. Yeah, I said it. Shark Week. Over a lack of diversity, both race and gender. A thread for Dr. David Schiffman. A white male marine biologist. It is difficult to overstate how badly the Discovery Channel in general and Shark Week specifically are failing to meet the moment we're in right now, a.k.a. why their typical nonsense bothers me more in 2020 than past years. Recall that my specific area of expertise is where people learn wrong information about how it affects their behavior and policy references. preferences. I do this with respect to thread, threatened species, but same principles apply more broadly. So basically, I study animals, but I like to be a fucking nut job. The two biggest things happening in the U.S. right now are pandemic made worse by leaders and citizens not trusting science and experts and long overdue reckoning with race and racism, sexism, he adds in, because he's a big ally, even though he wouldn't know what to do with the girl if she got naked in front of him. The Discovery Channel is one of the most influential sources of informal science education in the United States, attracting millions of viewers. Shark Week is marine biologists' biggest platform. What they say and who they say it matters. Example, diversity and representation matter in Shark Week. 2020 promo material for 24 specials this year. Not a single woman name is included. The Alasmo Society, the world's largest professional society of shark researchers, is 60% women. Diversity and representation matter. More Shark Week shows take place in the Bahamas or South Africa than anywhere else. I can't remember the last time they featured a black scientific expert, if ever. Diversity and representation representation matter the most frequent shark week host often half of all the shows is not an expert regularly say obviously wrong things and think it's funny to troll scientists and have his fans harass them online he's also white the washington football team changed their mascot before the discovery channel addressed these long-standing regular criticisms virginia took down robert e lee statues jeepers and what about public trust and experts? Discovery obviously didn't cause the pandemic, but a culture of pseudoscience, nonsense, and distrust in experts, and the long-promoted certainly didn't help matter. Shark Week's long-standing expert believe this due to overwhelming evidence, but this random guy with no experience in education or credential thinks they're wrong, and we're going to portray him, portray him as the hero. Shark Week's refusal to do fact-checking of the statements they make about shark biology is annoying. The exact same behavior when done by others. Viral misinformation about COVID is deadly. Shark Week could model good behavior to their millions of fans they chose not to. Obviously, it has a worse impact when people say, I don't personally believe masks help stop the spread of COVID. Then when Shark Week host says, I personally believe sharks eat carbon dioxide to heal the planet despite no evidence. But it's the same anti-intellectual behavior. It's not elitist to say that complex technical problems require some degree of technical training, experts, and expertise. The exact same anti-expert nonsense Shark Week does all the time is deadly when others do it. Pandemic response. They could model good behavior. And it keeps going on. I'm not going to... It goes on for, like, ever. These are the people we're dealing with. Guys like him are out in a crowd, as we'll see from the AP who got just trashed for actually doing journalism, doing both sides of a protest. And they're using lasers. I got a laser pointer that melts your fucking face off. It's military grade. 
That's what they're using out there. And throwing shit. Cans of food. Frozen bottles. But these are the people that are in that crowd. Also in that crowd, Gloria Pazimuno, the New York City mayor, says it's a very good question to ask if the seal New York City is relevant for today. He says it's a great question and something we're taking a look at. Cliff Levy, a Native American man in a loincloth, a New York City official seal, so it's an early American settler holding a long rope with a loop on the end. This is from the New York Times. New York Times. It features a Native American in breech cloth and an early American settler holding a long rope and what appears to be a loop on the end. And for more than a century, it served as the official seal in New York City. Perhaps not much for much longer. Except the settler is a sailor and the rope is called a plummet. It has a lead weight. It's used to measure the depth of water. From NYC Gov, Dexter, a sailor, his right arm bent, holding in right hand a plummet. His left arm bent, his left hand resting on top of a shield, above his right arm, a cross staff. Sinister, an Indian of Manhattan, his right arm bent, blah, blah, blah. And he explains it all. Deborah Mee Tex. It's called a lead line. It's used to measure depth and fathoms. Historical descriptions of a seal have always referred to the figure as left as a sailor. Sailor. An analyst will know that. Will Collier. The ratio is going to be pleasure to watch. Assistant managing editor doesn't bother to look up what a death finder looks like. This is up there with Sarah Silverman thinking roadwork spray paint on concrete was actually Nazi symbols. That's the other side of it. These are our journalists. And they don't even bother to look at stuff. They just know they have an agenda to push. And Chris Cuomo is... My God. Listen to this. Now, I was borrowing from Brother Lewis when I said, who says protest is supposed to be peaceful and quiet and polite? I know it says peaceful in the First Amendment. But if you just go and sing your songs and go home, nothing changes. And that's what he was encouraging. So what's the difference between good trouble and what? Bad trouble. All right, I'll tell you what the difference is. It's a test of where the trouble leads. Yeah, that's right. Ends and means. What's gained by the trouble? Freedom rides, marches, arrests, blood. They led to desegregation. The ongoing Black Lives Matter protests. In one of his later interviews, Lewis called them good trouble. Not the riots, not touching to hurt, not touching to destroy. That is criminal. That's not what Lewis did. And that's not what he was espousing. And cheapening what we're seeing now by those aberrant acts is really bad trouble at work. You are ignoring the reality and you are picking on the aberrations for bad reason. And where do we see that? The other side in Portland. This isn't about calling out men and women being sent in. It's about the man sending them in. President Trump is making bad trouble. He says the federal forces are protecting federal property from violent anarchists. Local officials say they didn't ask. Local officials say they're making it worse. It's that morally justified again. 
morally justified. It's okay to go burn shit if you're on the left. He's truly, literally articulating that it's okay to do whatever the fuck you want as long as you're doing it for fucking black people. But anybody else, oh no, no, we can't have that. You're a fucking terrorist. Remember, this is the same guy who said people stormed the Michigan Capitol. But now he's justifying what Portland, this is all about Portland. They won't stop defending what's going on in Portland. They even had hearings that we're going to get to. But it's just not CNN, ABC. Protesters in California set fire to a courthouse, damaged a police station, and assaulted officers after a peaceful demonstration intensified. Everybody in the world, a peaceful demonstration? Ian Miles Chong summed it up. A peaceful demonstration intensified is the most Orwellian phrase I've heard so far. They will justify any of it. And I don't think it's just all Trump. I think they know even the left is against it. So as we go into A block, here's a lady walking away because she's watched it and she can't do it. And then I'm just going to play a large chunk of Barr, the few times he could say anything, and how CNN prepped Barr. So I just got done hanging out with some friends that I've known since high school. And they were telling me how fed up they are with what's happening in Portland. Our leadership isn't doing anything about the rioting, the uh, vandalism. They're not doing anything about it. We all grew up Democrat, liberal, all of our lives. And now we're voting Republican because we're fed up. I wonder if the Democrats realize that everything that's happening in Portland and Seattle is really turning people off. Everyone is getting so frustrated, annoyed. Um, Everything is up in the air. Nobody knows what's opening, what's closed. A friend of mine told me that she really opened her eyes to what's really happening and that Democrats have never helped us. They're all just saying things to get votes and they never come through. So let's turn the Northwest red. Finally, I want to address a different breakdown in the rule of law that we've witnessed over the past two months. In the wake of George Floyd's death, violent rioters and anarchists have hijacked legitimate protests to wreak senseless havoc and destruction on innocent victims. The current situation in Portland is a telling example. Every night for the past two months, A mob of hundreds of rioters have laid siege to the federal courthouse and other nearby federal property. The rioters have come equipped for fight, armed with powerful slingshots, tasers, sledgehammers, saws, knives, rifles, and explosive devices. Inside the courthouse are a relatively small number of federal law enforcement personnel charged with with a defensive mission to protect the courthouse. What unfolds nightly around the courthouse cannot reasonably be called protest. It is, by any objective measure, an assault on the government of the United States. As elected officials of the federal government, every member of this committee, regardless of your political views or your feelings about the Trump administration, should condemn violence against federal officers 
and the destruction of federal property. What, what makes me concerned for the country is this is the first time in my memory that the leaders of one of our great two political parties, uh, the Democratic Party, are not coming out and condemning mob violence and the attack on federal courts. Uh, why can't we just say, you know, the, the violence against federal courts has to stop? Could we hear something like that? I wonder, are you delusional in many respects? Because he leads the public to believe, on the one hand, that he is here and he was invited, he was forced to come back to the uh, Department of Justice because he alone was going to be able to remove it from the political bowels that apparently they were in. When in reality, he solicited the opportunity, he asked for it, and he had bring it with open arms, and all for apparently a reason to politicize it. As Jeffrey has already talked about the questions that he has for him, most of the questions I have surrounding fall under the umbrella of whether he is aware just how politicized the Department of Justice has become. Why? Because un instead of actually uh, upholding the rule of law and enforcing the federal statutes and ensuring that there is um, equality under the law and no persons above it, he has done the polar opposite in so many instances. And one of the areas that I found most disturbing, frankly, was his notion in talking about, well, you know, it was a horrible killing of George Floyd, but then went on to talk about how black on black crime was actually the bigger issue to focus on and that people have been condemning the police unnecessarily. This is not somebody who has an attachment with reality of what we're actually seeing, even giving stats about the number of white men versus black men who've been killed this year by police, all the while not answering the question, where is the data the Department of Justice intends to provide to give this information as opposed to in an opening statement? The Attorney General, and this is P202, he does address the idea that he's a political attorney general as opposed to someone dispensing justice. He says, my decision on criminal matters have been left to my independent judgment based on the law and fact without any direction or interference from the White House or anyone outside the department. He even dropped the factotum bond, Jeffrey. He says he is not the president's factotum. Well, I mean, that, that's an assertion. And um, the, the question is, what do his actions show? I mean, sometimes if you are such a toady, you know what to do, even if you're not specifically instructed to do it. And I think, you know, Laura raises the broader question of the response to um, the unrest in the cities and uh, specifically what's going on in Portland. And, you know, one of the key questions um, that is is broader than just uh, William Barr, but certainly Barr is relevant, is, you know, are uh, federal authorities, federal law enforcement going into Portland as people trying to keep the peace and protect federal property, or are they stirring up more trouble? Are they soliciting uh, campaign video for Donald Trump's reelection campaign by trying to show um, that there, the, the degree of anger in the streets. I think the response to protests, whether it's in Portland or in the photo op in Lafayette Square in front of the White House, that is another area that I'm sure will be explored today. This, as uh, Zach in Tennessee summed up better, is just grandstanding. It, it has nothing to do with anything. I mean, I'm just going to play two of the Dems. This was for the 18% of the country who want to destroy it because you heard what normal Democrats think. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> Attorney General Barr, you 
started your testimony with eloquent words about the life and legacy of John Lewis fighting systematic racism, uh, voter intimidation, civil rights. Uh, the one thing that you have in common with your two predecessors, both Attorney General Sessions and Attorney General Whitaker, is that when you all came here and brought your top staff, you brought no black people. That, sir, is systematic racism. That is exactly what John Lewis spent his life uh, fighting. And so I would just suggest uh, that actions speak louder than words. And you should really should keep the name of the Honorable John Lewis out of the Department of Justice's uh, mouth. Uh, let me also say, you mentioned bogus Russiagate. In your opinion, as the Attorney General of the United States of America, did Russia interfere or attempt to interfere in the 2016 election? Uh, yes. In your position as the Attorney General of the United States, is Russia attempting to interfere in the 2020 presidential election? Uh, I, think, I think we have to assume that they are. Thank you, sir. Uh, now, let's talk about the integrity of the election, which is also uh, something Congressman Lewis uh, fought for. Jared Kushner implied that the president could move the election day. Can a sitting U.S. president move an election day? Actually, I haven't looked into that question under the Constitution. Well, 2 U.S. Code Section 7 says federal election day is the Tuesday after the first Monday in November. So if you take that as a correct statute, uh, is there any executive action by a president? I've never been asked the question before. I've never looked into it. As Attorney General of the United States, do you believe that this... 2020 presidential election will be rigged? I have no reason to think it will be. Uh, President Trump tweeted uh, that the election will be rigged, but he also tweeted that when he was losing to Hillary Clinton, and he tweeted that the day after it was Fox showed that he was losing to Trump. But I don't want to be too political. Do you believe, as the Attorney General of the United States, that mail-in voting will lead to massive voter fraud? I think there's a high risk that it will. Do you ever vote, vote by mail-in ballot? Apparently I did once at least. But you believe that other people voting by mail could lead to massive fraud? No, what I've talked about, made very clear, is that I'm not talking about accommodations to people who have to be out of the state or have some particular need not to, uh, uh, inability to go and vote. What I'm talking about is the wholesale conversion of election to you, voting. You, you do understand that African-Americans disproportionately do not survive COVID-19 coronavirus. You are aware of that. I didn't hear the question. You are aware that African-Americans, black people, disproportionately die from COVID-19 coronavirus, correct? I th yes, I think that's right. And not that it would be uh, the first time that African-Americans would risk their lives to vote in this country to preserve its democracy. Uh, but the suggestion is that them having the ability to vote by mail would somehow uh, lead to massive voter fraud. But I won't stick to that. No, I, I didn't say uh, that. I just uh, state, I think, what is a reality, which is that if you have wholesale mail-in voting, it substantially increases the risk of fraud. That's but it doesn't make it likely. That's all I said. Now, I also saw on TV that the president said he's not sure that he'll accept the election results. Can a president just protest because he lost an election? Protest in what sense? Well, can he contest an election 
just because he simply loses. Gore versus Bush v. Gore? Well, I think that that was over uh, a slim voter margin. I'm talking about if it is very clear that the president has lost an election, uh, does he have a remedy to contest the election? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, Let me go back to what uh, Representative Bass mentioned. You mentioned the number that there were eight African-Americans killed by the police and 11 uh, white people killed by the police. So if, you, if, if you use those numbers, uh, that's 85% of that population is white, 15% of that population is black. But if you actually look at the deaths according to the numbers you just gave, 42% of the deaths are African American mm-hmm. and 58% are white. That is a glaring disparity in terms of population. And I just give you those numbers. Well, not, not necessarily. Because, because I have to adjust it by, who, by the, you know, the race of the criminal perpetrator. No, I, I just did that for you. I'm using your numbers. And according to your numbers, African-Americans are four or five times more likely uh, than their percentage of the population to be killed by police than their no, white well, counterparts. The, the actual, so the, I, I just wanted to give you that based on your numbers. Actually, the studies I've seen have suggested two things. One, that in fact, uh, police are less likely uh, to shoot at a black suspect, a little bit more likely to shoot at white. However, that black, that police are, are more inclined to use non-lethal force in a uh, contact with an African American suspect. So those are the those in, in terms of the statistics. That's what it looks like to me. Any data that you have that shows that <clears throat> African Americans are less likely to die at the hands of police or be shot or shot at, uh, to me, is a a incorrect uh, analysis. But I am interested in seeing it. So if you have it, please see it. I won't call it any names. But if that data exists, I would be more than happy to see it. And since you're sending me that data, can you send me the data of African-Americans within the Department of Justice? How many you have in leadership ranks all the way down? Thank you. And I yield back. Gentlemen, yield back. On June 1st, there were protests against the murder of George Floyd and police brutality in Lafayette Park. Let us not be distracted by you or my GOP colleagues as to what these powerful and massive protests were actually about. They were about the persistent killing of black bodies by law enforcement. And finally, finally, an awakening in America of the conscience of our country. And yet your response, Mr. Barr, was to direct federal officers to close in on the protesters and to use shields offensively as weapons, tear gas, pepper balls, irritants, explosive devices, batons, and horses to clear the area just so the president could get a photo op. So I do want to ask you, do you think that your response, do you think the response at Lafayette Square to tear gas, pepper spray, and beat and protesters and injure American citizens who were just simply uh, exercising their First Amendment rights was appropriate? Well, first... It's my understanding that no tear gas was used on Monday, June 1st. Mr. Barr, that is a semantic distinction that has been proven false by many fact checkers. How is it semantic? Do you think... How is it semantic? Tear gas is a particular compound. You talked about chemical irritants, and it has been proven false by reports. So just answer the question. Do you well, think that it's appropriate well, at Lafayette Park to pepper spray 
tear gas and beat protesters and injure American citizens? Well, I don't accept your characterization of what happened, but as I explained, the effort there was... Mr. Barr, I just asked for a yes or no, so let me just tell you, I'm starting to lose my temper. According to sworn testimony before the House Natural Resources Committee by Army National Guard Officer Adam DeMarco, who was there, this was, quote, an unprovoked escalation and excessive use of force against peaceful protesters. Well, I don't Numerous remember, media I don't remember reports DeMarco as being... A, I Mr. Barr, excuse me, this is my time, sir, sir. The president told governors on a telephone call that the way to deal with the protesters of police brutality and systemic racism like in Lafayette Square is that, quote, you have to get much tougher. You have to dominate. If you don't dominate, you're wasting your time. These are terrorists. And he also talked about you on that call, sir. Here's what he said. He said, the attorney general is here, Bill Barr, and we will activate Bill Barr and activate him strongly. Do you remember that call, Mr. Barr? Yes, I do. But he wasn't talking about protesters. He was talking Mr. about Barr, rioters. Mr. Barr, apparently the president believes that you can be activated to implement the president's agenda and dominate American people exercising First Amendment rights if they're protesting against him. But let's look at how you respond when the protesters are supporters of the president, on two separate occasions, after President Trump tweeted, liberate Michigan to subvert stay-home orders to protect the public health of people in Michigan, protesters swarmed the Michigan Capitol carrying guns, some with swastikas, Confederate flags, and one even with a dark-haired doll with a noose around its neck. Are you aware that these protesters called for the governor to be lynched, shot, and beheaded? No. You're not aware of that? I was not aware of that. Major protests in Michigan. You're the attorney general, and you didn't know that the protesters called for the governor to be lynched, shot, and beheaded. So well, obviously you couldn't be concerned about that. Well, there are a lot you, of protests around the United States, and uh, on attorney June 1st, general I was Barr, worried you about the District of Columbia, in which is federal. In certain parts of the country, you're very aware of those, but when protesters with guns and swastikas you are aware of certain kinds of protesters but in michigan when protesters carry guns and confederate flags and swastikas and call for the governor of michigan to be beheaded and shot and lynched somehow you're not aware of that somehow you didn't know about it so you didn't send federal agents in to do to the president's supporters what you did to the president's protesters. In fact, you didn't, you didn't put pepper balls on those protesters. So the point I'm trying to make here, Mr. Barr, that I think is very important for the country to understand is that there is a real discrepancy in how you react as the attorney general, the top cop in this country, when white men with swastikas storm a government building with guns, there is no need for the president to, quote, activate you because they're getting the president's personal agenda done. But when black people and people of color protest police brutality, systemic racism, and the president's very own lack of response to those critical issues, then you forcibly remove them with armed federal officers, pepper bombs, because they are considered terrorists by the president. 
you take an aggressive approach to Black Lives Matter protests, but not to right wing extremists threatening to lynch a governor if it's for the Trump's if it's for the president's benefit. Did I get it right, Mr. Barr? I have responsibility for the federal government and the White House is the seat of the Mr. Barr, let me just make it clear. You are the, supposed to the Michigan authorities the people can handle of the United Michigan States of America not violate people's First Amendment m- rights. You are supposed to uphold democracy and secure equal justice under the law, not violently dismantle certain protesters based on the president's personal agenda. Gentlelady's time has expired. Mr. Chairman, I would like to ask unanimous consent to also introduce into the record a report from the MIT Election Data and Science Lab, which says that over the past 20 years, more than 250 million ballots have been cast by mail, and the fraud rate is 0.00006%. Without objection, Mr. Eschenthaler. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I know that was long, but it's to prove the point. Steve Krakar, Washington Post journalistic or Democratic pundit. This was from the Washington Post. Carol leaving. She was taking no prisoners. Jason Howerton. CNN reporter Jim Acosta retweeting a quote tweet from Washington Post reporter Carol Lenning sharing a video tweet filleting a Democratic congresswoman's hacky partisan attack from a former Daily Beast reporter. It's for the 18%, and I say all the time on this show, and I know it's annoying, but the media is part of the 18%. They hate America. They always have. Replies, yeah, the idea there's a racial bias because they didn't send in a federal officer to protest where there was literally not one injury or any property damage, but did when people are being dragged from the cars and beaten, stores being burnt down. Tiny bit of a stretch. How someone could twist what is going on in this country into what is to this is beyond me. What I learned, though, is that the media and Democrat twist everything to sound like this, but reality is not even close to it. Representative Jay Powell, who I played, is it's all for the sound bites. They've crafted what to say so that it looks good when the MSM dishonestly reports on this. The MSM won't show that Barr never had a chance to answer anything. Glenn Kessler. On another interview with Barr, 90% of black homicides are killed by other blacks. In 2014, the statement earned two Pinocchios, virtually the same percentage of whites kill white, important missing context. No, it isn't. The point is, you're saying that blacks are killed by white people. That's not true. They're killed by black people. So within this... Raven sums up, because I'm going to play Jake Tapper, your own clip shows you emphasizing a peaceful protest and downplaying the violent rioting. How does this help your case? Because he got butt hurt from the hearings that he said, hey, the media's downplaying it. And Jake Tapper comes out and downplays it. note from us uh, about the hearing today. At the beginning of the Attorney General Barr hearing at the House Judiciary Committee, the ranking member of the committee, Republican Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio, played a video featuring many uh, upsetting images of mayhem and violence from protests and riots across the country. And that was included along with a mashup of members of the media uh, and others using the term peaceful protests. Peaceful protests. Peaceful protests. Peaceful protests. Peaceful protests. 
the, the motive was clearly to show members of the media, including many of my CNN colleagues, calling violent protests peaceful. But Congressman Jordan neglected to give the full context of these comments. So my team and I did it for him. Here, for example, is the full sentence of what CNN reporter Josh Campbell said. And this has been the epicenter where there have been largely peaceful protests during the day, at night sometimes turning uh, violent with these confrontations between protesters and police. Here are the fuller context of the remarks of our correspondent Diane Gallagher. This is something that we have been seeing here on the streets of Atlanta, mostly peaceful protests uh, since the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And when it was one of their own, that anger, that frustration, that pain simply exploded. And we saw the result of that to overnight and into this morning uh, in those protests. Uh, again, for the most part, uh, throughout the entire day on Saturday, the protest after Rayshard Book's death were peaceful. And as it began to get dark, things began to change. So do you understand what, what Congressman Jordan and his team did there? Our reporters, Diane Gallagher and Josh Campbell, as you saw, accurately described the protests as peaceful and then often exploding into something else, including violence at night. But Congressman Jordan, you just quoted the part of what they said that said peaceful protests when that wasn't the full context. That's not what they said. They weren't calling violent protests peaceful. Congressman Jordan, you did a disservice to them. And more importantly, you did a disservice to the American people and you did a disservice to the truth. Congressman Jordan, you owe them and anyone else whose comments you completely misrepresented today on Capitol Hill, you owe them an apology. Any person of honor, any person who cares about the truth would do that. I guess we'll see what you're going to do. The responses on this were pretty pretty apropos i mean they nailed it uh even geraldo rivera i'm not going to read the mostly conservative people but uh house judiciary committee hearing targeting ag Barr seems designed to allow frustrated democrats to make speeches condemning real donald trump they're not seeking truth Dems simply shout over his answers making meaningful response impossible video seems undeniable proof of riots Bryn Scherr, Nadler shouting, shame on you, repeatedly as he blocks Barr of responding, is a perfect embodiment of the Democratic Party in 2020. And Greg Gutfeld, as screwed up as America seems, we do not deserve these clowns. I don't think there's a person other than the 18% who walked away saying, yeah, that was great. That was good stuff. That hearing was something America needed we needed to know the truth and we didn't because we already did know the truth and the truth is to win an election the left will side with anarchy and because of it over 100 police agencies pull out of agreement to guard dnc convention nobody in wisconsin is going to cover down on them they're all on their own. And that is awesome. So, let's get into our violent left. That was our beginning, which is a little long. 
And we'll start with a story you probably didn't hear about. Bullies don't win. And I said, baby, they don't. Because we're going to go in there and we're going to impeach them all. The biggest terror threat in this country is white men, most of them radicalized right up to the right. All punches are not equal morally. Today, 2020, when you go out, uh, you know, whether it's to Texas or out and about and talk to uh, regular folks, what do they ask you regarding the election, what it's all about this time, what people will be deciding upon, and what is at stake? I think a lot is at stake. Okay, and my suggestion to the American people is start listening to Democrats. We have to listen to what they're telling us. They talk about defunding the police. They talk about making excuses for violent mobs. Let's take them at their word. They want to destroy the things that bring us together, our common bonds, our founding, our love of country. And why did they do that? Why did they say those things? Because fundamentally they wanted to dismantle our country and, our, and its, its institutions. That's not my words, that's their words. Dismantle our economic freedom, our border security, our energy sector, all of it. Now, I don't think most Americans want that. I think we want a renewed sense of faith in the country. I think we, I think we want to have our kids love our country again. I think we want to restore a, a, a faith in our police forces, restore safety in our communities. And we want to rebuild our economy. Okay, we have the greatest economy that our country has ever known. We want to rebuild that. We want to rebuild our infrastructure along with it. So you're seeing a very clear choice in 2020. You know, it's chaos versus safety and security. It's socialism and doubling your tax rates versus economic freedom. It's, it's government takeover of your health care versus keeping the doctor that you trust. It's acquiescence to China versus holding China accountable. These are important themes, and, and the difference could not be more severe. This is not President Obama's Democrat Party, and people need to realize that. So, Congressman, uh, we knew that Elon Musk, it was announced that he's moving to Texas. That's going to create a lot of jobs. He's spot on. I said it for like three or four months. It drove you guys probably crazy. Listen to what they say and believe them. These people are fucking for real. They will do anything to get power. They don't give a fuck. They truly believe this 18% is going to save their ass. And I don't know why, but that's what they believe. The story I was going to tell you that you probably didn't hear. Man allegedly tried to drive through and over Blue Lives Matter. A man, man is accused of menacing demonstrators at a pro-police rally in Eaton, Colorado. Local police state on Facebook that they responded at about 3.38 p.m. to report of a man in a maroon SUV attempting to drive through or over a crowd of pedestrians. From the police, the SUV, SUV and subject left the area at a high rate of speed and was later taken into custody at 1100 block of 2nd Road in town of Eaton. The subject was taken into custody at 3.40 p.m. The defendant was charged with several counts of attempted first-degree assault, seven counts of felony menacing, and one count of reckless driving. Another person was cited for throwing missiles, police said. Officers did not clarify what link this second individual had to the incident. Isaiah Cordova. The defendant bonded out. But you didn't see that because all we had was Austin everywhere. Police investigating shooting death of a protester. 
Garrett Foster and his fiance Whitney Mitchell, a quadruple amputee who uses a wheelchair, were at a protest in Austin on Saturday night when Foster was shot and killed. Oh my God, he's a dick. Whoever killed this poor person who had a girlfriend that's quadruple... Oh, let's see. Here's the truth. Interview with them holding an AK-47. Oh, it's uh, AK-47. Uh, you got it out tonight? They don't let us march in the streets anymore, so got to practice some some of our rights. Nah, I think the, uh, I mean, if I use it against the cops, I'm dead, and I think all the people that hate us and, you know, want to say shit to us are too big of uh, pussies to stop and actually do anything about it, so. Why'd you start carrying? Well, our roommate got arrested, and they stopped letting us march anywhere, so started carrying. This one was dropped again because I've had a chance to look into Garrett Foster, the man who was shot and killed at Austin BLM protest. Investigators want to figure out who's at fault because both people were armed. Breaking APD Chief Brian Manley says Garrett Foster had multiple gunshot wounds. The person who shot Foster called 911 to report that someone had pointed a gun at his vehicle and that he fired. Manley said Foster had an AK-47 and that it appeared that though Foster pointed the gun at the car, detectives are reviewing precise actions of those involved. Investigators are coordinating with Travis prosecutors and two people have been released pending further investigation. A second person who fired at car also has been released pending investigation. If you have photos or information, please come forward. He pointed the gun. It's an AK-47. The guy defended him under Castle Doctrine. He can. And then we had another an Aurora. Shit. Yo, is everybody okay over there?
Holy shit. There's a confident, or, I mean, excuse me. Holy shit. It's just out of control. Aurora police, while the protesters walking on I-225, a vehicle decided to drive through the crowd. A protester decided to fire off a weapon, striking at least one of the other protesters or transported to the hospital in stable conditions. So the people in the protest just start fucking shooting randomly. And this isn't national news. A protester, in quotes, in Aurora, Colorado, opened fire in a Jeep, attempted to pass through a crowd, which was illegally blocking I-225 freeway. He hit fellow protesters when he discharged his weapon. The Jeep suffered damage, but the driver was unharmed. Around 7 p.m., Aurora police observed from a media helicopter Jeep that was traveling northbound on I-225 headed towards the protesters. The Jeep then drives in the crowd. While the Jeep was being driven through the crowd, multiple shots are fired. At this time, it is unknown if multiple people fired the weapon or if it was just one individual. Also, there, there, there has been no reported injuries reported to us about anyone being hit by the vehicle. Two people were struck by gunfire. One adult male was shot in the leg and he was transported to the hospital. Another adult male was shot in the head, only causing a grazing wound. James Hassan, stop swarming cars on freeways and city streets. It's a recipe for people to either side to get hurt. People understandably feel threatened, especially if they have their families in the car. Leaders who don't crack down on this now will own the consequences. Robert L. Murphy, I'm being dead serious. What is the theory behind blocking roads? Like there are a bunch of people who thus far haven't cared about police brutality, but if you harass them in their traveling, they will start to see your point of view. How? Aurora, mostly peaceful, have been saying this for weeks. The longer police don't get this in hand and restore order, the more citizens are going to start taking matters in their own hand. Get these fucking assholes off the road. Stop enabling and allowing this. But they truly believe they can do anything. Impeded. And we'll see that after our first break. So, we're going to play... What are we going to play? Let's play something... Ali Veshi. This sums up the media. And when we come on the other side, we'll hear from a POC, BLM person, why they think they have the right to fuck with cars. And if you don't let them fuck with you, and the police don't arrest you for not doing what the protesters tell you to do, well, it's racism or some shit. Look around. Take a moment. Process this. This is the United States of America. Did you know that? Sounds like a silly question, but I mean it. I'm asking whether you know this is America, because little by little, over the last three and a half years, this country has changed. Have you noticed that it's not the same America we once knew? Well, if you haven't, that's part of the point. That's how democracy starts to slip into authoritarianism. It doesn't happen all at once. But at some point, you start to look around you and you realize that the values of the country that you know and love have been replaced with more sinister ideals by the people in charge. And you realize that those sinister ideals are designed to keep those in power in power. It's not about you or us. It's about them. And anything that goes against those sinister ideals, no matter how central they are to the founding of this country, gets tossed aside. 
Rules fail, norms change, institutions begin to crumble. This isn't some futuristic dystopian novel about America. This is America in 2020. America is in crisis. Our democracy is under attack. The historic social unrest, the recession, the ever-raging pandemic, it's now bringing those sinister ideals into sharper relief than we ever could have imagined. The Constitution of the United States protects the freedom of free speech and assembly and protest. But not in Portland, Oregon tonight. Armed federal agents are patrolling the streets of Portland. Federal forces wearing camouflage and military gear as if they were at war, using tear gas on demonstrators. Welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast with Tony Reed. Move aside and let the man go through. Let the man go through. Move aside and let the man go through. Let the man go through. That is a montage of three different truck incidents that I just found on the internet. They're everywhere. They think they can do whatever they want. And Julia Clark, just a rando, African-American, listen to this. As Crenshaw said, listen to him. Believe him. Let me speak on what happened in Georgetown tonight. Georgetown Karen led a siren noise pollution protest where he blocked off streets in Georgetown. The police president was heavy. As we blocked off streets, we demanded that people turn around. This was a minor inconvenience for the affluent white people. As we blocked streets, certain drivers got annoyed and attempted to maneuver their way around us. This particular white woman, and I played it in the montage... Tried to cut through a gas station. Me and a couple of the protesters were stood in front of the car and demanded to turn around. Instead, she steps on the gas. In the video above, she had already attempted to run us over multiple times and had moved from the front of the car to the side and was banging on her window, screaming at her to stop. Throughout the whole thing, the cops were doing nothing. Finally, cops come, but instead of arresting this woman or asking for her ID, they turned towards us and began pushing us. We're begging them to arrest this woman who just tried to run over protesters repeatedly. Police continue to refuse to arrest the white woman, saying that since she stayed on the scene only because we blocked her from leaving, she did not have intent and cannot be charged nor arrested. After about 40 minutes, finally asked for her ID, and she claims she's too scared to give it to them because protests might take it. In the meantime, myself and other witnesses give our information to officers after this time pushing protesters and protecting this violent white woman the mp let her drive home shoving and grabbing protesters who tried to stop her police treated us like threats when we she was clearly dangerous i'm exhausted my hands are shaking i'm angry as the nation returns to complacency we're still out here we're still being killed we're still being brutalized for every second our nation forgets about us we get angrier we deserve more we need more please don't do shit they've never done shit we'll never do shit and we'll never be shit Fuck the police. This is a hate crime. Find this woman. Let me clarify. Police have always done the wrong shit. Still will never be shit. ACAB. 
For more protest information, there's another protest tomorrow at 6.30. Good night. I need to self-care. This is exactly why we need to defund MPD. MPD does not protect citizens, utilize the right to protest. They protect a woman who tries to run over protesters. Police don't keep us safe. The only thing police are good for is brutalizing black people. Defund MPD. The funny thing is, when you look up ACAB... It literally is all cops are bastard, and it's to the skinhead organization. But do you hear her projection? It's no different than Ali Veshi. They're projecting and saying a total alternate reality. To think four years ago we started about alternate facts and how alternate facts were going to kill America, and they're horrible, and here are protesters thinking that they have the right to block traffic. For white people. And they're not being arrested. Yet she still goes on a screed that the cops are bastards. White supremacy rules the day because she can't just block traffic like she's in charge or something. Lindsay Fifield, you don't have a constitutional right to burn down a courthouse. You don't have a constitutional right to violently assault innocent people. You don't have a constitutional right to stand in a roadway and demand the cops arrest the drivers of cars who try to get past you. You don't have that right. And I I remember saying this shit was going to get out of control, and it's getting out of control. We are getting people hurt because they are going farther and farther and farther. My favorite on this is radio hosts mock Trump by saying Seattle protests were peaceful and hateful. And then right around, unrelated is a fire a few blocks from me, blah, blah, blah. And then he goes, holy shit, they trashed my fucking house. My favorite part of that is he saw it coming. He saw it coming. He knew it was coming, and there was nothing he could do about it. But isn't that the the trend? They're all for this till it's on their yard, and then they go, what the fuck? And then there's, of course, Portland. We're, we're still in Portland. Out of those protests turning violent, demonstrators squaring off with federal officers in Portland, Oregon, protests over racial injustice intensifying. Local leaders say the federal presence is only fueling this. Clashes spreading to other cities. A man was shot and killed at a Black Lives Matter protest in Austin, Texas, and in Aurora, Colorado. A car plowing through a crowd, too injured when witnesses say shots were fired to try to stop that vehicle. 
Today, the mayors of six cities sent a joint letter to Congress demanding that leaders help end what they call an occupation of their streets by federal agents. Now, this is President Trump prepares to send at least 100 more agents to Portland after another night of violent clashes. Here's CBS's Carter Evans. More chaos on the streets of Portland as once again peaceful protests turn violent overnight with federal agents unleashing a massive response. Both sides appear to use leaf blowers, pushing tear gas toward each other and seemingly lost in this escalating conflict. The reason that we're out here is because Black Lives Matter and the feds need to get out of town. Authorities across the country are bracing for more protests tonight after some demonstrations turned violent over the weekend. Clashes in several cities. We get more from Aaron McLaughlin. Overnight in Portland, protesters launch mortar-style fireworks at federal agents, the steel barrier that encases the federal courthouse between them, provoking this response. What started two months ago as protests against police brutality has now become a nightly ritual. They started gassing us, so we came back with respirators. They started shooting us, so we came back with vests. Who's escalating this? It's not us. So, Commissioner Bratton, I want to talk to you about a, a few things. I want to talk about the violence that's going on in Seattle and Oakland and uh, Portland. Uh, but first, uh, let's talk about uh, the, the federal forces that Donald Trump and Bill Barr uh, took out to Portland. And uh, you, you saw the images of, of, of unidentified uh, officers uh, grabbing people, throwing them into unmarked cars and taking them away often without probable cause. Let's start right there. Uh, what, what's your reaction to what you have seen from the government side, from the Trump administration side? Well, I think the genie is out of the bottle, Joe, that uh, and I think on both the Republican side and Democratic side, there needs to be great concern about getting through the summer and getting the run up to the election. It's uh, quite clear that the uh, movement of these special forces into cities uh, and particularly for the escalator, if there would be more assignments, is going to increase the violence. And clearly, uh, the public, uh, as evidenced by the continued demonstrations in Portland and now the growing demonstrations around the country, have a great deal of concern, and they should, that uh, uh, there was a great belief that this may be an inappropriate use of those forces. This type of function has traditionally been the role of local police. As we uh, battle this fight around police reform, the George uh, Floyd bill uh, pending now, or really sitting on uh, Speaker McConnell's desk, uh, already passed by the House, many of us trying to pressure McConnell to move forward. Is it your fear that the uh, activities will take away from legislative change and will affect juries in the trials of those police officers that have been charged in the death of George Floyd and in the in the death, the civilians charged in the death of Aubrey, because at the end of the day, we have real trials and real legislation pending and strategies ought to have that in mind. These media sound bites are getting more and more absurd as they try to defend this because they hate Trump and they're part of the 18%. Ted Wheeler, Commissioner Joe Allen, PDX, are calling for an immediate meeting with the Department of Homeland Security leadership on the ground in Portland and with Acting Secretary Wolf to discuss a ceasefire and the removal of heightened federal forces. 
everybody in the world. You said you wouldn't meet with them. Andy and Gio, after preemptively declaring a refute, refused to meet with the federal official, Wheeler is suddenly reversed course and now demanding a meeting to discuss a ceasefire. Even Wheeler, Wheeler seems to recognize that the city is insurgents who have declared war on the U.S. government. Mary Grace American, the mayor of Portland wants to negotiate a ceasefire between his terrorist insurgents and the federal government. Sean, the producer, why don't you go back out in the crowd outside the federal building and tell them you want a ceasefire? Until Barack Obama took office, America had a long-standing policy against negotiating with terrorists. I hope real Donald Trump president marks a return to that policy. We don't, we don't negotiate with terrorists. What did you think this was? The Obama administration, Ted? <laughs> I mean, that's how fucking twisted they are. A ceasefire. The federal officers are standing on the street. They went and arrested people that were ringleading it, but they just stand and defend a building, and your thugs keep attacking it. The group that hates you, but you think are going to get you elected, keep attacking a federal building. So the AP sends people out, and I'm going to tell you the one guy we're going to read his tweets. He was excoriated by the left for even doing it. But it's a long article. I'm going to read some of it. The party at the Salmon Street Springs Fountain, a riverfront landmark in the heart of Portland, was just getting started. Dozens of drummers beat out entrancing rhythms as a crowd of hundreds danced joyfully as the setting sun on Mount Hood. Poster boards bearing the names of dozens of black men and women killed by police stirred in the gentle breeze as energy built a fever pitch and more and more people pulled in the square. Suddenly, a 10-year-old, Xavier Minor, jumped into the center circle and started dancing the MC took note, yo, black kids are the future, black kids are the future. He shouted until a beaming Xavier finally stepped out and his father proud embrace. A few minutes later, as night fell, the music stopped and the march to the federal courthouse began. Two blocks west and one block south, the several dozen law enforcement agents guarding the Marco Hatfield Federal Courthouse could hear the protesters coming. Under orders to protect the courthouse, federal property that has been increasingly targeted as the city's protest against racial injustice march on. You see how they add that little line? It's not true. The agents were accustomed to the drill, but tonight the crowd was huge, 4,000 people. A top commander with the U.S. Marshal Service peered out a window facing the Malamute River and watched the sea of humanity. It was going to be another long night. The courthouse, a stately building with large... Oh, give a fuck. Outside was boarded up with thick plywood, narrow slits at the top of the plywood, accessed by a mecha- mechanized scaffolding. Gave the agents inside a view of the crowd and opening through which to fire pepper balls. The terrace outside the front door was littered with garbage. The steps leading to the courthouse splattered with paint. A mixture of anti-police and Black Lives Matter graffiti covered the building's outer walls and columns to the height of about 10 feet. Tear gas from the previous night protest still stung in the air and coated the floor with a slime that had been hurriedly mopped up by custodian. A few sickly-looking potted plants still decorated the lobby, a reminder of a time before the courthouse was a battlefield. In the no-man's land outside stood a fence, a thick black iron installation erected six days before, a dividing line between protesters and protectors, a stark separation between two radically different worldviews. To the protesters, the men inside the battened-down courthouse were at best thoughtless political minions and at worst murderous henchmen. To the agents inside, the demonstrators that packed the downtown each night are violent anarchists, an angry sea of humanity bent on hurting or even killing federal agents during their job. It's scary. 
You open those doors out when the crowd is shaking the fence and on the other side of the fence are people that want to kill you because of the job we choose and what we represent. He requested anonymity because the protesters identified him and posted his personal information online. Can't walk outside without being in fear of my life. I'm worried for my life every time I walk outside the building. This weekend, journalists from the Associated Press were both outside with the protesters and inside the courthouse with federal agents documenting the chaotic fight, chaotic fight that has become an unlikely centerpiece of the protest movement gripping America. The nation is seething with anxiety and deeply divided about the role of police, the value of black lives, and the limit of federal authority in an election season like no other because we've made it like no other. We the media. I add in. In Portland, on a single city block owned by the U.S. government, the anxiety has turned to turmoil. Is this the beginning of the United States transforming into a military state where federal agents flood the street and overrule local authorities? You hear it? Or is it a battle to keep the violence of Portland from becoming a new America, a frightening vision painted by Donald Trump, what the future will hold without his leadership? Fear and uncertainty about the answers to those questions exploded in Portland, and it's a real armed conflict that plays out every night. The chaos in Portland spread this weekend, and they talk about other things and stuff we already talked about. Oakland, Seattle's doing it. Damn. We have a positive message. There's nothing to quell here, she said, referencing Trump's statement that the agents were going to quell unrest. The people of Portland are saying we don't want this presence here, and we don't think we need them at all. No, they're not. You're saying it. As she spoke, small pods of three or four protesters dressed in black circulated in the crowd, stopping every minute to point green laser beams in the eyes of the agent posted as lookouts on porticos on the courthouse upper stories. The agents above were silhouetted against the dark sky as dozens of green laser dots and largely spotlights played on the courthouse walls projected from the back of the crowd. Thirty minutes later, someone fired a commercial-grade firework into the fence. Next came a flare, and then protesters began using an angle grinder to eat away at the fence. A barrage of items came whizzing into the courthouse, rocks, cans of beans, water bottles, potatoes, and rubber bouncy balls that caused the agents to slip and fall. Within minutes, the federal agents of the fence perimeter fired the first tear gas of the night. Inside the courthouse, it was dark, pitch dark, except for that one narrowing ceiling bulb that cast a cone of light over the stairs. We're working for a Pulitzer here. Without lights, the agents hoped that they would be better protected from people in the crowd who were firing metal ball bearings through the windows with slingshots. Thick ribbons of green light from blinding lasers crisscrossed the courthouse lobby, forcing the agents who were resting in between deployments to duck and weave to protect their eyes. Agents on scaffolding fired pepper balls through the window slits on the crowd while others sat quietly on marble benches alone or in small groups and waited their turn. No one talked about over the whir of industrial fans set up to blow the tear gas back outside. The men who weren't on the front line sat with helmets in the laps but left their gas masks on so they could breathe. Every few minutes, a huge boom from a commercial-grade fire Firework tossed over the fence caused the walls to rattle. The crowd outside cheered as explosions of red, white, and green flashed against a thick curtain of yellowish tear gas. They have a basket here of rocks, cans of food, things they're throwing. The Federal Protective Service, U.S. Marshals, and U.S. Customs agents were tired and frustrated. They didn't want to confront the crowd. They just wanted to go home. For weeks, the chaos at the courthouse had flipped their sleep schedules turning their family lives upside down, let them scared each night, and they would be hit by a firework or a flare or blinded by a laser. Many were sent from out of town to reinforce the local agents. Some are members of the elite Border Patrol tactical team 
sent in for reinforcement. But others already stationed there had said they had chosen to live in Portland area and call it home. You see a lot of commentary on social media about, well, we're wearing protective gear so that's not going to hurt them. Okay, I'll put that same protective gear on you and I'll throw a brick at your head and you tell me if you feel comfortable with that, said a senior official. They can't put out 10 seconds of something on social media that unfolds over several minutes and those on the 10 seconds that look bad for us, whereas the rest of the world look bad for everybody, he said, speaking out to the protesters. They use what serves their narrative. Outside a young woman with long blonde hair wearing a halter top and jeans who had been gassed threw up in the glitter the gutter, the tear gas pushed back the people assailing the fence. Tendrils of acrid smoke also seemed deep into the park across from the courthouse. The vapors indiscriminately hit a man biking past, a middle school teacher, a musician, a volunteer medic, a dozen others have been far back in the protest dancing to the drums. I think what people fail to realize is us in Portland, we're still playing defense, so anything we do, it's a defensive maneuver, protecting ourselves at the very most and each other. No, you're not. I think that using chemical warfare on civilians is anything but protecting and serving, said Deshra. One of the people at the very front of the fence was Travis Rogers, a former U.S. Air Force veteran, recently quit his job as a Medicaid case manager in part because he would have been fired anyway if he got arrested. This night, Rogers wore a helmet and carried a blue shield made out of side of plastic barrels. We talked about it last podcast. Like most days, he spent most of the protests taking down the fence and screaming at federal guards, asking them to explore their conscience. After six years working for the military, Rogers says he felt better equipped than many to find talking points that might make the agents think about their mission more critically. I think it's a good idea to try to plant some seeds in their heads, them to go home and sleep on. These are people's kids and mothers and wives and daughters. Are being, they're gassing and they're going to have to go home to their mothers and wives and daughters. I try to encourage them to think about the fact that they're on the wrong side of history and they will not be treated so kindly because we're going to take you out in the street and burn you like a Bernie bro. But anything Roger said was lost in the thunderous noise, the booms of fireworks, tear gas canisters, whisking in the words away in the chaos of the night. The fireworks came whizzing over the fence so fast that the agent didn't have time to move. It exploded with a boom, leaving his hearing deafened and bloody gash on his forearm. Stunned with help from his cohorts, he stripped his boxer shorts and black t-shirts so his wounds could be examined and photographed for evidence. He told his failed agents he was more worried about his hearing than the gouges and the burns. By the end of the night, five other federal officers would be injured including another one who got a concussion when he was hit in the head with a firework. One agent was hospitalized, several agents have lingering vision problems from lasers. After each night of protest, they see dozens of homemade shields, slingshots, blocks of wood, and chunks of concrete. My friends have been hit in the head with hammers. I know people have been shot with fireworks. It's disgusting. I never thought I'd have to walk around in my office building wearing a gas mask to sit at my computer. Stay together, stay tight, we do this every night, they chanted the protesters' numbers, however, were half what they would have been a few hours ago. Tear gas, blah, 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 even an apple one protester ate at a midnight snack tasted spicy. It was just standing around the corner listening to music and kind of didn't even see it coming. I mean, there wasn't any announcement or anything, said the middle school teacher. By the time I just got to this corner here, I basically couldn't see. In the very front, those with gas masks formed a wall against the tear gas and pepper balls. Protesters who began wielding leaf blowers to push the gas back on the federal agents several days ago found that now the agents, too, had leaf blowers. Kennedy Verrett, a composer. Do you notice how it's more about the protesters? I was hoping you caught that. I'm, no, shit. 
When you were sent to protect property, said of the agents, trailing off, my ancestors were once property. No one protected them. Tear gas is nothing when you live in America. Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. Somewhere a bell tower chimed, even though it was 12.30 a.m., and a trumpet plainly played with taps as munition whizzed through the air. The whole world seemed upside down. A large bonfire was burning in front of the courthouse. Prote- protesters were nose-to-nose of federal agents' defense. A woman with a megaphone screamed obscenities through the wire. Tear gas canners bounced to roll in the street, their payload fizzing out in the air before protesters picked them up and hurled them back. A woman weaved through the crowd of the few hundred people who remained and told someone on the phone would reach some kind of standoff, I think. When the federal agents finally came, they came with force. A line of agents marched in lockstep down 3rd Street, pushing the crowd in front of them with tear gas and pepper balls. People scattered in small groups roamed the downtown as tear gas choked in the air. In less than two hours, it'd be daylight. I finally get outside at 7 a.m. after being in that building since 3 p.m. the day prior, and I look east, and I'm like, oh, the world's normal over there. And people are driving to work. And everything's functioning, said Deputy Marshal. And I look out the street, and it looks like downtown Baghdad. The battle's over. The agents and the demonstrators gather the things and headed to bed. Protesters and protectors sleeping in the same city, perhaps even on the same street, resting up for the next night. For a nightfall, begin again. Mike Balsamo was inside. All you, I'm not going to read the replies he got because he's a bastard because he put out their side of the story. I spent the weekend inside a Portland federal courthouse, marshals. Mortars were being fired off repeatedly. Fireworks and flares shot in the lobby. Frozen bottles, concrete cans, bouncy balls regularly whizzed over the fence. We wanted to show you a look inside the protest from both perspectives out in the crowd with protesters inside the courthouse, federal officers. It was a really eye-opening experience to see it firsthand. I was inside the courthouse and was... Somebody else was outside. I watched an injured officer were hauled inside. In one case, the commercial firework came over so fast the officer didn't have time to respond. It burned through his sleeve and he had a bloody glasses, gas, gashes on his forearm. Another had a concussion for being hit in the head with a mortar. The lights inside the courthouse had been turned off for safety and the light with high-powered lasers bounced off the lobby almost of the night. The fear is palpable. Three officers were struck in the last few weeks and still haven't regained their vision. When we were out inside the fence line, someone fired off a motor and exploded inches away from us, but no one was hurt. A large bonfire had been started in the street, and people were aiming fireworks. It was almost 2.30 a.m. Then the officers outside the Portland courthouse had been hit by an array of objects, from canned food to ball bearings fired from slingshot shots. On Saturday night, a DHS officer was soaked completely in orange paint thrown from one of many paint cans later seized by authority. It was clear USMS tactical decisions this weekend were very thought out. Even after a large hole was cut in the fest Saturday night, they made a decision not to go out because it could escalate. They cleared the area only after a huge section of the fence was pulled down. It was really striking talking to the marshals who have been working to protect the courthouse for weeks. Many are from Portland. They have friends who peacefully protest during the day, but at night they say demonstrators are hijacked by agitators set on violence. A marshal told me I'm worried for my life every time I walk outside the building, and that feeling extends widely. They are offended by being told to get out of Portland. They live there, work daily to take violent criminals off the street, and it's their city too. Everyone I spoke to this weekend acknowledged there was different groups of protesters. By day, they're mostly peaceful protesters and want to affect meaningful change. But the middle of the night, nearly all those people are gone and the violence really picks up. One thing is very clear, there's no plan for the feds to retreat. Those protecting the building feel a personal, professional duty to protect the courthouse. Many raise the same point, the courthouse stands for justice for all people, and they aren't going anywhere. 
on the outside of my fence, my colleague was talking to folks who say the tactics by federal officials are going too far. Many say they want true criminal justice reform and aren't there to be destructive. Some have said their message is being co-opted by the agitators. How, in the name of Zeus's asshole, could you believe that they're good? How can you think those are good people? I don't even understand. I mean, the media is just outright lying about what's going on. They've been lying since day one. Here's a long segment of them saying the federal officers are to blame. Policy is important. Laws are important. Budgets are important. But you know what's important also is, is what kind of values are you communicating? Bingo. This guy has generated a sense out there that people are waking up to that he ran by deliberately dividing people from the moment he came down that escalator. And I think people are now going, I don't want my kid growing up that way. Barack Obama, Joe Biden, producing something of a talk show as they figure out new ways to campaign during the COVID crisis. 100 days to go. Let's talk about the election with our roundtable. Chris Christie joins us this morning along with Rahm Emanuel, Yvette Simpson, the CEO of Democracy for America, and Republican strategist Sarah Fagan. And Rahm, let me begin with you. We saw that series of moves by the president this week, canceling his convention in Jacksonville, bringing the uh, coronavirus briefings back, promoting wearing a mask for the first time in months. You told the New York Times the president has been mugged by reality. What did you mean by that? Well, the fact is he's trying to spin himself out of a situation and then he has not prepared America. He declared that's not. Let me get back to this one point. All these flip flops you talked about his first flip flop. He said he was going to be a wartime president and he turned out to be anything but that. If this is our, how America prepares for war, we would be losing in the, uh, not only the battle, but the whole war. And I think in this situation, he got mugged by reality because he thought he could just spin it out. Keep the numbers low. Don't let the boats in. This will be blowing over by spring. And reality is he needed to nationalize our public health response rather than what he's doing, which is nationalizing our public safety response in cities. And he's got it exactly upside down. And so he is a reality TV star. And reality is encroaching every day on his presidency. And he cannot spin himself out of this problem. And America is waiting for his leadership, which is nowhere to be found. Chris Christie, the president actually made some moves this week that you've been advocating for some time. The question is, is it enough? Well, listen, you know, not for Rom, obviously, because if he didn't do them, he'd be criticized for not doing them. And if he does do them, then it's called spin. Now, the fact of the matter is the president made good, smart moves this week, which I think will improve not only conditions in the country, most importantly, for dealing with the coronavirus, but also um, will improve his electoral chances. And when we were within 100 days of election, George, both are on the table. Uh, I think the president had a good week this week and, and, and very little coverage of what he did on drug pricing um, through his executive orders. That's going to have a real impact for drug costs for people going forward, especially for seniors. But in the end, we're 100 days away from an election. Everything will be seen through the prism of that. 
And as Nate just talked about, coronavirus is going to be, if not the most important issue, one of two most important issues along with the economy. And so the president is addressing that. Um, and I think he's going to need to continue to do that in the ways that we saw this week um, for the country to improve and for his chances to improve. Sarah Fagan, one of the things we also saw this week is, and I talked to Mark Meadows about the negotiations going on over the economic stimulus package and extending un unemployment benefits. As the president's poll numbers dropped, you've seen a lot of Republican senators especially start to balk a little bit at what the president has been calling for, including he, he had to drop his plan for a payroll tax cut. Yeah, I think, look, the, the old adage that uh, good policy is good politics, I think, uh, uh, probably never rings more true than in this stimulus debate. Uh, uh, the late Lee Atwater said, be for what's going to happen. There's going to be a stimulus package. Republicans should be for it. They should be for reasonable uh, insurance. There's been talk about moving from $600 extra dollars to $200. Uh, maybe it falls in between there. Uh, but the country's got to do something. Uh, COVID is still raging. People are still out of work. Uh, and uh, Republican senators, I think, and the White House are going to have to champion a package. And, and if at one of the things you're seeing, though, even in the face of all this, the president is out tweeting this morning about how he has higher enthusiasm among his base than Joe Biden has among, among his base. Of course, you, uh, you work with progressives across the, across the spectrum who took on Joe Biden during the primaries. Has he done enough to solve that problem? You know, I think at this stage of the game, we really need to be talking not about polling, but about planning. And so when you're 100 days out, talk to me about how many voters you've engaged. Talk to me about how many voters you've talked to about their plan to vote in the midst of COVID. Talk to me about the number of people who are talking to their church members, talking to their neighbors, talking to their family members about voting and making sure every single one of those people um, are voting. And so, yes, I think there's some optimism around polling, but we know what that looks like. We've seen that happen in 2016. It did not pan out ultimately on Election Day. And we didn't have a pandemic, which, you know, Sarah was talking about rent. We need to talk about how we might have displacement as a result of people not being able to pay their rent and being evicted. That all affects your registration and your ability to vote. We vote by mail. So these are all things that I would love for the Biden campaign and certainly to team up with progressives to make sure that we do the grassroots work to make sure that every single Democratic voter including progressives, including voters who don't traditionally vote, have the tools to vote, despite the fact that I do think that they don't see necessarily their issues presented in this particular candidate. And Chris Christie, one of the things we're also seeing from the president, he's tweeted on this this morning as well, continuing this law and order theme, uh, saw the riots in Portland and Seattle overnight, federal agents being sent to other cities uh, as well. Can that work for an incumbent president? Well, first of all, George, the answer to your question to a vet was no. Um, everything. Don't feel enthusiastic. I can tell you that the Trump base does feel enthusiastic. And and on the law and order issue, um, I, I would also say this, that, you know, Americans understand and understood um, the rightful, peaceful protests that were going on throughout the country in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. And you see it happening peacefully all across the country. Baseball started this week. You saw baseball players across the nation kneeling prior to the national anthem um, and, and showing other symbols in terms of signs on the field, patches on their uniforms to remind people about how important this issue is to be dealt with in this country and dealt with effectively. 
But most Americans, George, do not believe that the riots that are happening in Portland and Seattle and in other places across the country um, that are causing destruction and injury and in some cases death are acceptable. And the president is right to address these issues. And if the mayors in those towns are too politically timid to address people who are defacing and destroying their cities, then the president of the United States has to deal with it. And so I do think it's an effective thing to do. I don't know whether it's going to make sense politically or not for him, George, but it's his responsibility as president if the mayors are willing to walk away from their own responsibility not to support peaceful protests, but to stop um, violent riots. Rahm Emanuel, hold on, let me go to Rahm, because he was a mayor of one of those cities where the president is sending agents. Well, first of all, let me, I want to, I'll answer that, and then I want to go back to one political point, George. One is, you have to be very clear. The police and the superintendent of that police department are in charge because the federal operation undermines community policing. If they're in coordination with the local police department and the police department's in charge, that's one aspect of how to deal with crime or, in in the situation of Portland, Seattle, destruction of federal property. Second is, I think it's a bit ironic for the administration on two points. One is they're holding back burn grants for for police departments across the United States for the last three years, and now to say all of a sudden they're for public safety and for law and order is a bit ironic. Second is, I don't understand the Republicans. Somehow wearing a mask is an infringement on your personal liberties and freedoms, but sending in paramilitary troops uphold American values. That will never work. Hold on. For the other thing on politics, we have two very big points here, George. One is the president says he has enthusiasm. Joe Biden has the biggest uh, coalition that has ever been put together in recent memory for a Democrat. Second is the popular vote is no longer in doubt. Biden's going to win the popular vote. Trump has no chance at that. The question is the electoral vote. And if you look at the states where that is, Biden is also building a very broad metropolitan metropolitan majority between the suburban and urban efforts. And what he's trying to do out west is break up that suburban urban coalition and try to lure suburban voters away. And it's not working because his reaction is actually pushing suburban voters into the Democratic column. I think calling them paramilitary uh, is sort of insulting, Rom. I mean, these are well, federal I'll show you agents. The pictures, They're federal agents protecting a courthouse that the rioters are trying to burn, in some cases with federal officials inside. Uh, look, make no mistake about it. These uh, mayors uh, on the West Coast have advocated their leadership. Uh, I don't think the federal government has any choice but to go protect federal property. Um, I do agree, though, that the election is going to hinge on COVID. So while the president is doing his rightful responsibility, and the country supports him in this, uh, uh, it is very, very important for the Trump campaign to focus on the things that the president and the administration have done well relative to COVID. And if you go back to March when he uh, instituted uh, the Protection Act and General Motors is producing ventilators and the country has come together in public-private ways to produce face masks, we aren't having conversations right now. Well, yes, cases are going up. We are not having conversations right now about no ventilators, about no face mask, about no PPE for the most part. Uh, In a relatively short period of time, in a global pandemic, this country has marshaled a very good response. We need better testing, but we have enough testing. We need faster testing. Uh, And so those are the things I think the Trump administration should be talking about, because that is where Americans are going to be placing their votes based, uh, based on everything we know today. 
Yvette, should the Trump White House George, be talking I, about I this just want to have a, COVID? Go ahead. George, I just wanted to jump in on the conversation about Portland. And I, and I do agree with Rom about the way we characterize these individuals who are unidentified largely coming in from the outside. Portland looks like a war zone. It, it looks like an, an uh, autocracy. It looks like a, a, a regime that is not a democracy right now. It looks authoritarian. And the idea that you're trying to protect structures by destroying bodies of people who are protesting. You have moms on the front line. People are showing up with bruises. This is is not this is America and so for um, the president to pretend like he actually cares about people he's just started wearing a mask this week and he wants a round of applause if you care about the lives of people you should be protecting lives and you should have been wearing a mask months and months ago you and bet. I do want to echo what both the governor and Rom said about resources that have been cut from cities for public safety so to now say that he cares about public safety and is and, and is trying to bring in external forces which is what we don't need we don't need people who don't know the community, policing the community, people who believe that they should attack first and ask questions later, policing in communities with the unrest that That's we've already seen and the way that police are in, engaging with the community. Like I think it's, I think it's a, a fool's errand to believe that this is this like is not about public safety. This is about scaring people into George. believing that our country needs this kind of intervention. We do not. What we need is to focus on people no, and not well, to no. have outside paramilitary forces in our streets throwing live grenades and other things at, at American people. Sarah, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Oh, oh, please. It, you know, George, looks, George, please. Can we let, let, let can Sarah we finish and then this, George? This is OK. OK, here's the deal. It looks like a war zone because at 1:30 in the morning, 2000 people are throwing uh, in cases, bottles and Molotov cocktails. There is no reason people need to be at a courthouse past midnight. It, it is violent. And Those people are the very paramilitary forces that you're protecting, Sarah. The people who are causing all the violence are the people who are supposed to be protecting people. That, that's, that's not absurd. the protesters. That is, there are moms locked arm in arm who are coming back absurd. with bruises. Uh, let's, let's, we need to separate the two things. One, there are people using this demonstration to create destruction. That can be dealt both at a local level with federal support to the local level, not it's, assuming it's that not being dealt with at a local level, well, Ron. Wait a second, Chris. Hold on. It's not being second. dealt with. You, you do have a public safety concern, and that's why community policing across cities and states. Even when you did Camden, community policing is the core concept. A federal government agency has to be behind supporting local government rather than assuming the control. If they do, every premise of sustained trust between police and community gets destroyed. Second is, there is a hip... And what's happening is a split screen. You have people talking about public safety, about legitimacy, and then you have what is a very good friend, John Lewis, who was the conscience of the Congress. He is leaving now our, our lives, who woke America up to its moral responsibility. And then the response, as people are actually exercising the First Amendment, is to use paramilitary forces to crush Chris. This, this should wake everybody up. Chris Christie. Yeah, it, it, it is insulting, George. It's insulting to say 
that what's going on in Portland and Seattle is what America is supposed to look like. It's further insulting to, to compare the peaceful protesters that were locking arms with police in Camden to protest rightfully police brutality with the people who are throwing Molotov cocktails and destroying property in Portland and Seattle. And I agree with Rom. If the local police would step up and do the job and control the destruction and the violence, then there would be no need for federal agents to come in. But when they show they can't, that shows that community there is no need for them to come in. You don't see that happening. You don't see you don't see that happening in Camden. You don't see that happening in Camden, New Jersey, as we sit here today, which is a model of community policing. And you do see it happening. in. They they just relate so much. I mean, more articles. Portland protester Nathan Theta speaks out. I am notoriously naked. They're, they're still trying to make her a hero. And, the, and then you have Lanny Davis. Violent protesters lighting fires using violence in Portland should wear Donald Trump buttons. That is who they're helping. Progressives of Portland need to call them out, including Mayor, uh, please retweet, don't allow violent people help. Joe Scarborough, how does breaking windows at a courthouse, setting fire to Felder Building, firing guns in a crowd, and committing acts of vandalism forward any cause? Actually, don't bother, because there's no good answer. It's self-destructive, because now they're rewriting the narrative. And, and and you're so right about the protesters not playing in the president's hands. You know, two things can be true at once. These can be deeply troubling, disturbing uh, rallies or, or, or attacks against rallies, against peaceful protests, uh, for the most part. Uh, the seizing of, of Americans off the streets by unmarked police officers thrown into unmarked vans and whisked away. Uh, with the police not having probable cause, and at the same time, uh, protesters, uh, it, it, it would if if they want federal officers out of their cities doing this, uh, of course they can uh, do court challenges and should do court challenges. They should also, uh, you know, if they stay away from federal buildings, uh, the the president and bar have absolutely no legal standing. Uh, to be where they were. They can protest in other places, and that, that takes multiple people. Fusilizzi Scott Spock, the narrative is shifting. Brian, uh, Byron York, voices on the left concerned about rioters in poli- po- Portland no longer argue it's peaceful, worried about backfire, legal insurrection, Democrats lit the match, now they're getting burned. So sorry. It's been a month and a half. Someone's concerned about the narrative failing. But it's everywhere. This is a putt-putt golf riot. I just, once again, I, I don't understand how a political party, how the media 
could justify this. You're the same people that said any fucking Tea Party protest was white supremacist violence. There were terrorists. That AP article, you could tell that one author just walked away like, what the fuck? Because the media won't cover it. They just, the moment it went to this, CNN stopped airing it. MSNBC stopped airing it. And now you just make it about Trump. Trump's asserting his constitutional authority. No, he's not. And that, I think the best thing today is a protester believing they have the right to block a road. So, let's do a quick media section. We're going to do a woke. America's national greatness myths are shattering. Can they survive? Rather than restore some idealized, jingostic version of who we are, let us this painful moment of self-doubt to remake the reality of America. This is now the other way they're doing it. Articles about America's never been good, and yeah, this is pretty bad, but it's going to serve a purpose. We're going to be a new America. Then we have the CNN and WAPO with Sandman, and here's Benny. CNN Brian Seltzer is being accused of breaching network confidential agreement with Nick Sandman and may cost his job. Brian Seltzer may have landed himself in hot water. According to the attorney of Covington Catholic High School, Nicholas Sandman, last week Sandman announced that the Washington Post settled the $250 million defamation lawsuit. He filed his botched coverage of vile confrontation with a Native American elder, blah, blah, blah. The followed, the multi-million dollar settlement agreed CNN reached with Teenager. However, Salmon's attorney, Lynn Wood, spotted a retweet from Seltzer of a tweet written by attorney Mark Zaid, who speculated about how much money the teen walked away with from the settlement. They were with those with zero legal experience, as far as I could tell, should not be conjecturing on lawsuit suits they know nothing about. What kind of journalism is that? I've litigated defamation cases, was undoubtedly paid nuanced value settling and nothing more. Would accuse reliable sources host of breaching his network's own confidential agreement with the client. This retweet by Brian Seltzer may have cost him his job at CNN. It's a called breach of confidentiality agreement. Brian Seltzer's a liar. I know how to deal with liars, Wood said. And he did. Mark Zayed said that they probably got anything. Nicholas Salmon. I can't decide if it's worse than Brian Seltzer or believe Brian Seltzer. He was never in any court hearing or meeting I was, so why does he act like he knows anything? Nicholas Salmon. Brian Seltzer just can't learn basic lessons over on CNN. Asha Rapaka. Another CNN. I guess 225K to go away. But they're not supposed to talk about it. Dan Zach, I don't know, but it makes sense that the Post did. You settled for a small amount without admitting fault because there was none in order to avoid a more expensive one. So they're trying to downplay it because they don't like the fact that he got money. And they think they didn't do anything wrong. They still believe those kids were bastards. And that sums up our media pretty well couple sound bites and we'll move it along. Here is uh, Congressman Lewis, and you knew they were going to make it about Trump. The, the, the John Lewis was there at Black Lives Matter Plaza uh, in Washington uh, earlier this summer. It speaks to how he lived the words he spoke. He lived the advice he gave. 
I mean, he also knew, uh, just thinking about Bloody Sunday and the bridge that he's about to go across, that uh, not only is freedom a verb, justice is a verb as well, um, but he also would always say that freedom ain't free. Hmm. Um, it requires you to act. There is a cost that is paid. And there, there are a couple of things that I want to say today. Um, and in the words of, of members of Congress, use a point of personal privilege. The first is, I, I, don't, want pe- I don't want people to believe uh, that the Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights Act and Fair Housing Act were because of some legislative policy push. I don't want them to believe that it was because uh, of some protest per se. The reason that we were able to achieve those moments of, of legislative success is because of black blood that flowed through the streets, just like the black blood that flowed on the bridge of the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. And so we have to remember that there was a great cost because freedom is not free. And the last thing that I'll say that that I think April would agree with, I'm pretty sure she would, that's probably even more important today. For those individuals like the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, for Mitch McConnell, those words that you're saying about John Lewis, they ring hollow and they are empty. You cannot praise John Lewis in one hand and then be the leading cause of voter suppression and gutting the Voting Rights Act on the other hand. You know, John Lewis would always say that we got to get in good trouble. And for those people right now who are patting him on the back as he's making his way to heaven, but who do not believe in the fundamental right for us to pass a safe and secure ballot every time we go to the ballot box, no matter where you're from or where you look like, I think John Lewis would simply look at you and say that your words do not mean a thing. And so for all of my friends who are more conservative than I, who want to uh, praise John Lewis today and for the next six days as we go through and remember this great hero, sometimes you just need to keep John Lewis's name out of your mouth because he's someone who stood on the shoulders of words like democracy, little d, and freedom, things that right now people who are attempting to push back on those things do not completely understand, and John Lewis nearly gave his life so that we can be free. But um, when Congressman Lewis passed, uh, there were those asking the President of the United States to say nothing, uh, saying that they did not want his voice, his tweets, his words, um, to ruin the moment, if you will, to ruin the tributes. Um, On this day where we pay tribute to this hero, uh, that is, I'm going to use it again, just a sad statement on the course of our discourse on any issue, but especially on an important issue of race and civility, that an American hero can pass and it is controversial for the President of the United States to say anything. Yeah, and and John Lewis himself was saddened by this fact. He, of course, did not go to the inauguration of Donald Trump. He lamented the lack of moral clarity, moral leadership uh, in this White House, fitting that he is uh, pausing by uh, the memorial to Martin Luther King, as well as other founding fathers of this nation. And that is who he was. He was one of the founders, uh, and it's fitting that uh, we celebrate him 
uh, in this way today. He was certainly uh, saddened by what he has seen as a real, I think, degradation of the political uh, discourse. Man, this is not a day for politics. It's not why I said it, but this, we're seeing so much history. This hearse now is about to pass. It's turning onto 17th Street. Um, the White House will be to its right as it goes up the street here to Black Lives Matter Plaza, the newly created Black Lives Matter Plaza here in Washington, D.C. If you look at the right hand of your screen, you see the flags flying up there. That is the beginning of the White House complex as it goes up the street here. Um, this is an American hero who deserves to be saluted by his president, whether that president is a Democrat or a Republican. And to go out to our woke section, gotta go media, go Biden. It's what they do. It'll be our music break, and we'll come in and get ourselves woke. Just a little woke. It's not a super woke today. It's just woke. As the campaign endgame begins to play out over the next 100 days, we will see an all-out political war unfold between the Trump and Biden camps and their surrogates. So, who better to turn to than a couple of veterans of such wars? To give us an idea of what to expect. We have Democratic strategist David Pluff, who's of course the campaign manager to Barack Obama, then senior advisor to President Obama, so he's no stranger to all of this, and senior strategist to Mitt Romney's campaign, Stuart Stevens, now of course a member of the Republican anti-Trump Lincoln Project and author of It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. I think that... Uh, more than enough people to defeat Donald Trump, in my view, have decided they don't want to rehire him. So Biden's job now is to make sure you keep some pressure there, but I think events largely will do that. I saw this poll where, uh, the Monmouth poll, where Donald Trump had a very unfavorable 48%. I've never seen anything like that. It's sort of like Eastern Bloc countries. They're going to run, and I think are running, um, a racially tinged campaign, unlike anything we've seen in modern politics by a president uh, or a nominee of a party. It's very reminiscent of George Wallace. Do they have confidence that Donald Trump is going to set the conditions so that their life can get better? I don't think he can. You guys were as good uh, as I thought you'd be. All I'm saying is, and and, uh, I think Congressman Lewis would would echo it uh, in that wonderful voice where he always spoke with a kind of biblical shout. He was a little guy, but his voice was so strong. If you want to end this reign of terror, this reign of error, in terms of COVID, you've got to vote. And the idea that somehow or another, because you think one thinks that Trump is an idiot or he's, uh, out, you know, he's, he's a racist, whatever you might think, one might think, it's not going to matter if what happened in 2016 happens again. Yeah. And I just want to make the point that this president won the presidency in terms of the Electoral College, but he did not get the popular vote. So that is a point to be made. And also, John, when you said that we're crazy, if we think that this is uh, the, the, the end of this election, we're looking at these polls today. Let me just show you something I saw in Axios today. It says it was a, a tweet. Now may be a good time to remember that a Gallup poll, general election poll, released July 26, 1988 gave Michael Dukakis a 17-point lead over George H.W. Bush, the Republican nominee. In November, Bush won 426 electoral votes and carried 40 states. So you're right, 100 days, that's an awful long time to go. Uh, Michael, I'm going to give you the last word here as you button all of this up and what we have to look forward to these next 100 days. 
I have two things I want to say very quickly. One, if you're not listening to what uh, my good friend John Meacham just said, uh, you're going to miss this election. You're going to miss the next 100 days. How he just framed this moment is exactly what we're in. This is this is the, the culmination of 64 and 68 manifest in 2020. Number two, yes, demographics change, but attitudes don't. Attitudes are nurtured, they're formed, they're inculcated in future voters. So while the numbers say, yes, Biden's up by 11, 7, 12, he can be up by 20, he could be down by 400 electoral college votes <laughs> come November. Hmm. So there's a lot, of, a lot of work that people have to do. Democrats have to get their head out of the sand about this election. Listen to what Meacham just said, because he just framed it for you. Now figure out how you're going to go into this November to get that vote turned out so that the Electoral College numbers, along with the popular vote, align in such a way that your candidate. I do want to ask you about the business at hand, which, as we know uh, from the White House and, and from Leader McConnell's office, is this bill they plan to introduce tomorrow uh, to provide another round of aid. Um, you opposed it earlier this week. Are you on board yeah. now? I, I am not. We have right now two simultaneous national crises. We have a global pandemic. It is serious. It has taken the lives of over 600,000 people. We need to do significantly more to fight the disease. At the same time, we have an absolute economic catastrophe. We have over 44 million Americans have lost their job, and we have got to get America back to work. Unfortunately, I just listened to your interview with Speaker Pelosi. Her objectives are focused on neither of those. Her objectives are shoveling cash at the problem and shutting America down. And in particular, you look at the $3 trillion bill she's trying to push. It's just shoveling money to her friends and not actually solving the problem. Our objective should be Americans want to get back to work. They want to be able to provide for their right. family. They want to be... be, be hopeful for the future. And, and unfortunately, Margaret, I, I think we're seeing Democrats, we're seeing Democratic governors, we're seeing Democratic mayors. But what specifically, but what specifically, because in terms of the unemployment benefits, do you object to providing any kind or any amount of federal boost to unemployment at this point? Because not everyone is choosing to be out of work. The policy that Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats are pushing adds an additional $600 a week of federal money to unemployment. We have the unemployment system. The system right, and McConnell wants to take it down to 70% of prior wages. The problem is, for 68% of people receiving it right now, they are being paid more on unemployment than they made in their job. And I'll tell you, I've spoken to small business owners all over the state of Texas who are trying to reopen and they're calling their, their waiters and waitresses, yeah. they're calling their busboys, and they won't come back. And of course they won't come back because the federal government is paying in some instances twice as much money to stay home. But as, you're open as, as, to a lesser amount? I, look, I, what we ought to focus on instead of just shoveling trillions out the door we ought to be passing a recovery bill. Now, what's a recovery bill? A recovery bill would be lifting the taxes and the regulations that are hammering small businesses so that people can go back to work. A recovery bill would suspend right. the payroll tax, which would give a, a, a pay raise 
to everyone in America who's working. That actually gets people back to work. Well, the, the Mark- Treasury Secretary said this morning that you could have five, six, seven other bills coming along that include things like a payroll tax. But this time, unemployment in particular is something that he said uh, needs to be extended. And, and according to our latest CBS poll, it's very popular. Uh, 74% of Republicans approve uh, more stimulus and added benefits. 92% of Democrats, 82% of independence. So Republicans do have the burden of governing right now. Why aren't you on board with this? I am on board with restarting the economy. What what Democrats want to do, we're 100 days out from the presidential election. The only objective Democrats have is to defeat Donald Trump. And they've cynically decided the best way to defeat Donald Trump is shut down every business in America, shut down every school in America. You know, Nancy Pelosi talks about working men and women. What she's proposing is keeping working men and women from working. And, you know, ironically, what she does have in her bill, she has a big tax cut for millionaires and billionaires in blue states. I I just want to quickly get you on. I'm, I'm sorry. I just want to quickly get you on China. Poking at the media bubble, one podcast at a time. Here's Tony Reid. or left-handed right and you've known this since you were little pretty much and if someone tried to make you do everything with your left hand it would be super weird right if i tried to use scissors i'd definitely stab myself (laughs) well that's how bailey feels the same way that you know that you're right-handed bailey knows she's a girl and we all want our outsides to match our insides right yeah and it's rad to have parents and a babysitter who get it She's really lucky. You seem to know a lot about this stuff. Well, I am from California. That's Netflix with uh, some dude that's a girl, Miss jo- oh, Jesus Christ. I don't even know what that kid was. It's it, I, I just once again, if you're gonna do this shit, fucking adults, they're kids. So. Since we moved COVID into our woke section, well, it's so much funner. CNN shames small California Christian concert as corona threat, but not protest. CNN demonstrated a shameless double standard again on Saturday, breaking out of corona shaming over a Christian concert. Here's their tweet video from a Northern California outdoor religious concert shows hundreds of people crowded together, most of them not wearing masks. Drawing criticism from local health department that say the gathering violated state coronavirus rules. 
Uh, Twitchy highlighted one obvious retort CNN received a picture of Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti communing with protesters shoulder to shoulder, no mask. But the Christians get treated differently. CNN reporter Alexander Meeks and Jason Hanna went on to Tis Tis Task Force video for North California outdoor religious. Hundreds of people crowded together, blah, 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 blah. Um, Christian music, a faith event, Reading to self-quarantine for 14 days. While outdoor faith gatherings are allowed, this event did not allow state guidelines such as people staying six feet apart and wearing masks, and therefore they put the community at risk. The event was publicized by Hold the Line, a faith-based political activist movement created by Sean Fuck. Fuck. Feet. I don't know how to say his name. A Christian worship musician in Northern California ran lost for seat. Video obtained by a CNN affiliate, KRCR, shows people crowds singing or standing close together near the bridge along the Sacramento River. Most without masks. Folk didn't, or fucked, or whatever his name is, did not respond to CNN requests for comment, but he asked a supporter on Facebook to wear a mask at social distance. After attacks on social media, Folk posted an online statement defending it. Government leaders voiced support for outdoor protests in recent months. They should not be condemning Christians seeking to gather. Yeah. But it was a big theme. Facebook told Christian Org that man's death threat were not policy violation. A Florida man said death threats respected conservative organizations on social media and while the government took them seriously, Facebook moderators report did not. Facebook claims to protect its users, blah, 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 but the American Family Association, which I've signed petitions for, especially the bathroom, Chafe Davis of Papano Beach, Florida, will reportedly serve time at federal prison for publicly threatening to kill employees of the socially conservative AFA in the summer of 19... 19- 2019, which you did not hear in the press. A press release detailing the event state that Chase Davis threatened AFA staff members by saying the following on Facebook, I'm coming to Tupelo, unexpected with a group of people, and we're going to kill every single person who runs your group. You're the most disgusting people in America. I put together a group to have your pieces of shit obliterated in dust. Yes. I literally mean killing all of you. You people are nothing but disgusting. Worn out and old excuses for human life. According to the press release, AFA reported the threat to Facebook, but were told that the threat was not a violation of policy. Of course it's not. Telling Christians they're going to die, big fucking deal. Then you got Don Winslow. You can't be pro-life and advocate kids going back to school in a pandemic. You see that logic? I, I don't see that logic. Even Fauci, even everybody... Fucking Bill Gates said they got to go back to school. Andrew Cuomo's the next one. Video from a concert held in Southampton on Saturday show egregious social distancing violations. I am appalled. Department of Health conducted an investigation. We have no tolerance for illegal, reckless endangerment of public health. Storm Pagilia. So this is not okay? Protests and riots are? You're appalled? You went to Georgia and didn't wear a mask? They're just protesting, somebody said. Calm down. If they held it at a nursing home, you'd be cool with it. <laughs> and then you got the wokey woke. Oh, wait a minute. Let me play Cuomo because they brought him back on TV to tell us all how we need to kill our grandma and infect the entire fucking country. Ah, shit. The freaking files corrupt. Sorry. It doesn't matter. It's probably no different than what he said before. 
So then we get to the Wokey Woke, and this is the Daily Mail, and I laughed so fucking hard, I think I peed a little bit, because I'm getting old like that. Okay, I actually didn't pee a little bit, but I did fucking just laugh my ass off. Are masks giving men a license to leer? Women report a rise in aggressive eye contact since face coverings became commonplace as an expert warned they provide anonymity for threatening behavior. Kind of like social media. Yeah, they give anonymity. You know, before I read this article, I think this is pretty aggressive. It wasn't taken down from Twitter. This lady told little kids she hopes they all die. They're not supposed to wear them. That's not true. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. You will school requires children to enter the age of 10 not to wear them. So why would I never wear them? Why? It's being ridiculous. Y'all still You're going to all die. You take care of yourself. Fine. Yeah, that that's the conduct we get because mayors and Democrats and the media, they tell people to do that. But you don't hear any stories about how their violent rhetoric is making people tell little kids they should die. So, But let's get back to leering. Women online are reported to rise in aggressive eye contact. Social media users sharing stories. UN Women UK Executive Director said she's aware of the mask. Clem Baronet told Female... I guess it's a sight. We need to create an understanding of behavior like unwanted and persistent staring is intimidating. <laughs> this is all UK. Women across the country reporting a rise in aggressive eye contact since the introduction of face coverings in some public places. New laws introduced over the weekend force customers to wear them and everywhere because they're liberal and more liberal than us. Um, but many women have been sharing stories online of aggressive eye contact and hard staring. With one tweeting, grown men staring at you with a mask on is worse than when they don't have a mask. UN female UK executive director Claire Barnett told female as we work to build it back better. Build back better. Jesus fucking Christ, that's Biden's shit. Following lockdown, we need to prevent the lack of witness of antisocial behavior due to less populated public space. Did he co-opt that from the left? This will require wide strip changes in attitudes and behavior, creating an understanding. Shut the fuck up. So here are some of the goddamn tweets that they put up. Seriously, we're all wearing masks and some men still keep staring. It's wrong. Tamara. Oh, that was Regina Faflaga. Tamara. Do men realize that masks don't cover their eyes so we can still see them staring like creepy pieces of shit? Whore done it. A, she spelled it like a whore. A jaunt through downtown revealed men do not understand the anonymity of masks. The masks do not cover your eyes. I can still you see you staring at me, you fucking idiots. What the fuck? Men staring at you in masks are even more creepier because you just can't see them bulging out their fucking eyes. Do these men know that staring into eye thing is weird? Wit these masks on like new. No. Grown men stare. Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. Many women taking to share their experience. She explained as part of the campaign to make UK public safer. We're hearing reports of rising harassment and threatening behavior in the streets and transport in addition to clearly documented rising domestic abuse. And I'm not reading the rest of this. They're, they're literally, they break down why you should wear a mask. And these are a couple fucking women who thought somebody looked at them and it hurt their feelings. 
Jesus fucking Christ. But it's not as stupid as this. I can't tell if this is satire or serious. It seems like it's serious. It's not a eat with a mask. I think the epitome of racist is when you associate other people with somebody and you say, how could you be with that one person? I mean, what are you, 12? Are we in grade school? I mean, seriously, anybody ever think about it? Are we, we're, we're living grade school, aren't we? These people are fucking insane. So Ida B. Wells, who is going to be on the Rappahoe Show, Oh, this is fabulous. Thoughtful thread. He is right. The fight over 1619 Project is not about history. It's about memory. Seth Kotler. The conservative freak out about 1619 Project, which Cotton is just the latest example, is not about history. It's about memory, about what part of the nation passed. We should hold in our memories going forward and about how we tell the story of nation to our children. Great concept, but when you want to tear everything down... <clears throat> How do you tell that history? Well, you tell it through lies. Here is her tweet thread. Tell me if this gives you faith that she just didn't make this shit up. I've always said the 1619 Project's not history. It's a work of journalism that explicitly seeks to challenge the narrative and therefore the national memory. The project has always been as much about the present as the past. The crazy thing is the 1619 Project is using history and reporting to make an argument and never pretended to be history. We explicitly state our aim of product produced of the series of essays, critiques, was always expected, but the need to discredit it speaks to something else further. The curriculum is supplementary and cannot, and which never intended to supplant U.S. history curriculum, which is pretty terrible, but none of these folks seem concerned about that. Teachers have used it in English, social studies, and food class, and art. The fight here is about who gets to control the national narrative and therefore the nation's shared memory of itself. One group has monopolized this for too long in order to create this myth of exceptionalism. If their true version is true, what do they have to fear? Everybody in the world. Stephen L. Miller. I too have been saying it's not history since it was published. Kevin McMahon. My life's work is not about history. It's actually about my ideological framework disguised as history. It's about narrative and story, not history. This is actually a damning admission. Henry, okay, now that the author is openly admitting the 169 Project is a work of a propaganda, not history, can people please drop their absurd objections to it being excluded from history curriculums? Because that's the point. It's not about it's being used. It's that you have to use it. And it is supplanting. When you have a whole national narrative that the only reason why we broke from Britain was to have slavery, and we did the Second Amendment so we could have slavery, which are all lies... What the fuck? But it's always narrative with the left. From blacks are hunted down by cops to voter suppression. Stacey Abrams to feature an upcoming documentary from Amazon Studios on voter suppression, which was proven to be false. There was no voter suppression. She lost. But the narrative has been since then, she lost because of racism. Then we have California State University to require students to take ethnic studies or social justice so they can graduate. 
ABC News reports the School Board of Trustees approved the measure on Wednesday with 23 campuses. Cal State is one of the largest four universities in the country. The school hopes that the new curriculum will be mandatory 23 to 24. California MMA ethnic studies courses and high school requirement for graduation. So to graduate in mathematics, you have to know SJW craziness. Really. And then sent to me right before I started broadcasting today, or I guess podcasting, I guess broadcasting's not actually the right uh, word. My bro in Oregon sent me this. This is something that I have known about since I was in the Army. <clears throat> the forever argument... You're not black enough. You're on the, you're betraying Black Lives Matter. I'm black. Yeah, yeah, but that's not. You're white. You know, you're not black on the inside. I'm more black than you on the inside at this particular point. Yeah. Holy black. There were people during the times of slavery who enabled the slavers. You're on the wrong side, ma'am. I promise you. You are my sister. I am you standing here. I promise you who I am. You're me standing here. My God. No company. Come on. Come on. Social distance. Come on. We just did. All right. Wow. Here we go. The very first Americans were were protesters. Protesters are the very first people to die for this country. Sir, what's your profession? I'm Jesus Christ, you tool. My profession is to save the world from goddamned assholes like yourself. Can I see your ID? Please. Yeah, you really want to? That's how crazy we've gotten. In the army, it was black people telling other black people they're not black enough. Now it's white liberals saying it. So to some gay shit mixed in with our everything's racist, glad Sarah Kate Ellis, LGBTQ plus voters could decide key 2020 races. They're basically saying to the 5.9 million cast their vote. And they're admitting in here how small a group they are. But yet they want 25% representation on TV. I mean, does that make any fucking sense? Anybody? I, I don't think so. Right share profiles with LGBTQ symbols canceled more often by drivers. Now drivers of rideshare are homophobic because they won't pick the people up. Now, I just want you to think for a second. This is my car, and I don't want my car trashed. And sometimes rowdy people do this, and you learn that this demographic does more than that demographic. It's your car. But once again, narrative agenda, you will. Anti-LGBTQ plus professor found dead at North Carolina. Mike Adams and you know I I wasn't gonna I was gonna try to not Tucker but I'm gonna Tucker one of the most outspokenly conservative professors in the United States died last week there are not many Mike Adams taught at the University of North Carolina Wilmington he was direct about his views historical record here's a clip of Adams describing what he thought political weapon for them to shut down speech that they can't rebut I've got a definition, by the way, for hate speech. I think it's speech that the hate, that the left hates because they lack the intelligence to rebut it. It's one thing for a talk show host to say that, but you can imagine the response when a professor says it. 
For articulating his beliefs, Adams faced never-ending harassment. After he criticized the tyrannical behavior of the governor of North Carolina during the coronavirus shutdowns, thousands petitioned for his removal. And in the end, the mob won. University of North Carolina Wilmington forced Adams into early retirement. His last day would have been next week. Well, last week, Adams apparently shot himself. But it wasn't enough. The media continued. Professor behind vile, racist, and sexist tweets found dead in North Carolina home. That's real. BuzzFeed ran a story with this headline, quote, a professor who was known for his racist, misogynistic tweets was found dead in his home. Imagine doing something like that, writing something like that about a dead man. They didn't think twice. That's who they are. And that's what they do to you for the decades. And it's very clear, it couldn't be clearer. Children raised by married parents vastly outperformed children who weren't on every scale. On average, they're happier, healthier, more successful. They're paid more. They're not in jail. They graduate. So we should be very concerned about a new Senate report. It shows the demise of two-parent households has accelerated dramatically in this country. One notable collapse is the percentage of young women who are married that's dropped from 71% in 1962 to 42% in 2019. The result of this, people aren't getting married, but they're still having children. That means a massive uptick in out-of-wedlock births. Out-of-wedlock births rose from 5% of all births in 1960 to 40% of all births today. Heather McDonald is the author of The Diversity Delusion. She studied these trends carefully, and we're happy to have her on the show tonight. So Heather, the first thing I notice, and, and I think it's the science on this is so clear, I don't think there's even a debate about it, but I notice that in affluent neighborhoods, like the one I've spent a lot of my life living in, not one person will judge out of wedlock births, but there are no out of wedlock births. Everyone's married and has kids within marriage. What does that tell you? It tells you that the elites have lost faith in the bourgeois values that they practice but are not willing to articulate because they believe that somehow they're associated with white supremacy. We've been hearing a lot, Tucker, about this uh, white privilege meme. That's a poisonous fiction. Here's the real class divide in this country. And sadly, it's also a race divide. The likelihood of growing up with two married parents. I'm going to break a massive feminist taboo here and say that males matter, that fathers matter. That, that fathers bring a set of values and norms to child rearing, whether it's self-reliance or self-discipline, honor and courage, on average, that complement what mothers can bring. Of course. And when you lose that symmetry and that emotional support for children that goes so far beyond economic support, which is largely irrelevant, it's the, question, it's the fact that you have twice as much uh, kinship support and people, the two parents can can spell each other when one is exhausted. That's what results in successful children. And the anarchy that we've lived through with the looting and the rioting of the last month, Tucker, has been preceded by a more slow motion anarchy and breakdown, which is the breakdown of the family because our prisons today are filled almost exclusively with fatherless men. I can't think of any national politician who would say that. I mean, Barack Obama talked about fathers. I don't think he ever once mentioned marriage because unmarried mothers are a core constituency in his party. Other than maybe, I'm serious, Kanye West, I can't think of anybody who's ever said anything like that. Why? 
The feminists rule our discourse. You're not allowed to say that men matter. I mean, that, it's just, uh, you believe survivors, believe that they live in a rape culture. I will say, though, that before he was elected president, Barack Obama in 2008, gave a Father's Day speech from Chicago that I urge all your listeners, but I urge in particular the so-called progressives to read, where he gave the facts that you started with, Tucker, about the much greater chance that fatherless boys end up in prison, end up out of school, end up in gangs. Uh, sadly, Obama did not act on that speech, and the Republicans have not been much better. Part of the problem is, is that so many of them, if they, if they were married initially, are now divorced, uh, so it's a hard thing to turn this around, but we have to, uh, because the, the breakdown of the family is the biggest civilizational catastrophe that we're facing today that is the root of the spiraling crime, insane drive-by shootings that we see in the inner city, and the lack of human, the, the destruction of human potential. I, I couldn't agree more. The science is completely clear. And by the way, just because you're divorced doesn't disqualify you from telling the truth. If you drink too much, it doesn't mean you want your kids to be alcoholics. I mean, this the whole personal is political identity is everything is just one of the dumbest ideas we've ever internalized and we have internalized. Yeah. Heather McDonald, one of the, really one of our smartest guests ever. Great to see you. Thank you. Thanks. Unfucking believable. It, it happens every time a conservative person dies. They they do all these horrible epitaphs to them. Because our, I believe our last story, is it? Yeah. Sums it up. Opinion exchange. They got this from uh, Real Clear Politics. Racial justice, the new religion. Since the death of George Floyd, this is by Catherine Kirsten. <clears throat> a movement that condemns America system systemically racist has con convulsed our public consciousness. 60 years after the Civil Rights Act, and despite decades of affirmative action, massive social welfare spending, and two-term black president, we are told that white supremacy deforms America today as it was has throughout history. The movement to eradicate white privilege manifests its demand to defund police and the toppling of statues. Educational businesses, media, nonprofit, entertainment institutions have taken up systemic racist mantra with breathtaking speed, issuing statements declaring their virtue and right thinking. Yet something is profoundly amiss in the frenzied movement that America has in its grip. This movement elevates passion over reason and dogma over data. It contemptuously rejects and attempts to silence calls for objective analysis as self-evidently racist. In the process, it requires adherence to turn a blind eye to its stark inconsistencies. For example, while it vol voluntaries blocked Interstate 94 and torched whole neighborhoods in the name of justice, for Floyd, who died at the hands of police, they're silent about the reign of gunfire and soaring death toll from black-on-black -black violence all over the country. As for Friday, the city in Minneapolis itself had 37 homicides, nearly twice as many, and at least 274 people have been shot, nearly 60% increase. Nationally, about 90% of black murder victims are killed by other blacks, where the race of the killer is known, according to the FBI. What is unfolding before our eyes is a new secular religion. For all claims of inclusivity, this new faith is deeply intolerant. It has roots in the American past that will likely surpass surprises adherents, the Puritan area of our nation's earliest religious zealots. Progressives are now enraged in doing theology without God. Woke is the new saved, in the words of commentator John Zamarek. 
parallels abound. One of Puritan theology's core tenets is innate depravity, a doctrine that humans are inherently wicked as a result of original sin. The woke faith preaches an updated version. America's original sin is white supremacy. For white people, having racist assumption is inevitable, according to Robin D'Angelo. Straight white men have been involved in the witness protection program that absolves them of their crimes, she declares. The Puritans divided humans into saved and the damned and the saints and the sinners. The woke faith down does the same, classifying people as either oppressors, white, or victims, non-white and gay. The new faith adherents view themselves as the elect redeemed as their by a predestined grace. <clears throat> they are convinced they possess a higher truth and are committed to imposing it on others. Like their Puritan forebears, the woke faith adherents believe that heretics whose false doctrine imperils the larger community must be rooted out. Dissenters must be humiliated, shunned, and branded with Hester Pern Scarlet A of shame. Yet the new faith does offer a way for white Americans and other sinners to find salvation, to join the righteous. They must confess their sins, check their privilege, beg for forgiveness, do penance, and vow to become an ally of their press today. A Puritan-inspired witch hunt mentality is ablaze all around us, bent on destroying the reputations and livelihoods of those who show the slightest hesitation to profess true doctrine. Bigot and hater are the new witch and wizard, as commentator Mary Eberstad has observed. The list of heretics fired or compelled to resign groans every day and includes a New York Times editor who dared to publish an opinion piece, reflexively branded as a racist by Senator Tom Cotton. Grant Knapp Napier, the Sacramento King announcer, who tweeted that all lives matter, every single one. And leaders of the Poetry Foundation who issued statements denouncing systemic racism that some deemed too vague. Forced conversion to the new faith are also becoming commonplace. Drew Brees, the Saints quarterback, we already know that. Dan Cathy, CEO of Chick-fil-A, sought absolution for past sins by shining the shoes of a black rapper. Politicians kneel in repentance and whites in Tony neighborhoods display a Black Lives Matter sign on their lawn. What explains this lightning speed capitulation? For many people, restless after the COVID-19 knockdown and often knowing little of history or religion, conversion to the woke faith can be part of a search for meaning in our post-Christian society. For corporations, professing solidarity with a new religion is good business. But for the movement's leader, this secular faith offers much more. Its goal is to dismantle as redeemably racist the sinful nation in which we live and to build, in the Puritan phrase, a new city on the hill, made in their own image and god damn that is so fucking good oh my god that's good so in light of that we're gonna do this is america and this is a mother that nbc featured who goes every night as people injure federal officers to scream but the way they wrote it Black Lives Matter, what we're here. I'm a mom, and I heard George when he called out Mama. That's why I'm here. A Portland mother explains why she continues to protest. Yeah. This is America. Don't catch you slipping, no. Don't catch you slipping, no. Look what I'm whipping, no. This is America. Don't catch you slipping, no. Don't catch you slipping, no. It's time for the last soundbite. Like the media say when they are pushing. 
liberal agenda stories. And this is America in 2019. Hey! I'm so tired of this! I am so tired! I'm sleep deprived because I'm a single mom and I work full time and I have to come and spend my nights with you! Because I can't stand in my own streets and say Black Lives Matter! Black Lives Matter, that's why we're here. We're not here because of some building. We don't care about the building. We don't care about your stupid fence. We care about black lives. And I'm a mom, and I heard George when he called out mama. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. Because George called out for his mama. You all have moms. Your mom loves you. George's mom loved him. And my kids love me and I want to go home to them. But they agree that this is important. And it's not about some white ladies. It's not about me. It's about Black Lives Matter. There's so many amazing black women who have been doing this fight for years and I showed up late. I'm so tardy to this party. But I'm making up for it because I'm so angry. So angry. And black, black people are allowed to be angry and who cares if somebody graffitis on this stupid building? We're talking about human lives. I believe zero of that, just for the record. Fucking absolutely fucking zero. And it's a whole write-up that she's so heroic. And she's not. Our out song today will be Chop Suey by System of the Down. Because also in This Is America, which is amazing, because I don't think this guy's American. Pretty sure he's not. Metal drummer calls BLM and of the people. Backs the blue. Bit liberal bandmates accept it. One professional rocker has been continuing his social media crusade against BLM, and despite his bandmates' more liberal leaning, has refused to back off his support. Metal and hard rock music outlet Loudwire reported on System of the Down drummer John Dolmayan's brave Pope police support. The musician posted a photo of NYPD uniform patched to his Instagram account on July 24th and captioned the social media post with pro-Blue Lives Matter sentiments. He wrote, very proud to have received this gift and will always support the men and women who put their lives on the line to help protect society. In addition to Back in the Blue, Dolman also threw out a scathing rebuke of both BLM and professional American sports leagues that have made weak-minded gestures of solidarity with openly Marxist movement. I'm also thankful to NBA, NFL, NFL, and MLB for kneeling in solidarity with BLM and showing that major sports franchises, much like most corporations, are all about the look and keeping the dollars rolling. Yep, at very least, we all get a clear picture of who's on our side and who isn't. The drummer's post then hit the sports leagues and the anti-cop propaganda outfit, which thrives on lies and misinformation about African-American deaths at the hands of police, with a brutal parting shot. He wrote that MLB, NFL, and MLB, much like BLM movement itself, could care less about black people. He later wrote, BLM have shown themselves to be the enemy of the people of the United States and have adopted lawlessness and embodiment by sensationalist media and the moronic Hollywood elites who pander to them at every opportunity. That is badass. Badass! Then we have New York Post, Bernie Sanders co-chair voting for Joe Biden like eating half a bowl of shit. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha! 
it's looking funny. So now we do our sound bite of the day before we close this out. And get ready for the next one, which will be Sunday. We have... Uh, we have, uh, I fought the law and the law won. Somebody screwing with a cop and takes him down. And a Texas town that rejected Antifa, they all came out. Didn't have pitchforks, but it sure looked like it. Well, my gosh. What can I say except, Debbie, you're going to Paris, and this is the final answer heard all around the world. He's won a million dollars. I can't believe you got to explain this shit to these brain dead ass Negroes. Well, don't your black life matter? Yeah. And you know why? Because I fucking say that it matters. See, I don't need to go out in the street with a sign screaming this shit like a fucking idiot and throwing a temper tantrum like a damn child. Uh, also, I'm not even remotely worried about being killed by the police. You know why? Come here. Let me tell you. Because I'm not a fucking criminal and I don't go around committing fucking crimes. Also, if I do interact with the police, guess what else I don't do? I don't fight the cops and I don't resist arrest like a fucking moron. I don't know why they always killing us. Really? See, nobody cares about your fucking skin color. Nobody gives a damn about your brown skin. See, it's your fucked up shitty behavior is why people don't like you. That's why I don't like you. You dumb, stupid-ass motherfuckers. Good for them. So, I want to end on something positive, because, you know, this is such a negative show. And here is an article from Debbie Trong. D.C. public school teacher briefly line up body bags, which are trash bags full of garbage, outside school system offices protesting plan that could send them back to classrooms in fall. Mayor Brower Specter announced if schools are partially open later in the week. Didn't work out the way they thought. Comfortably smug. Okay, time to fire these clowns and hire Americans that want job. The curmudgeon. A reminder that DCPS Teachers Union, they're corrupt from the top to bottom. A past president was caught embezzling $5 million. Another one got a DUI. And numerous cases of teachers just passing kids that aren't prepared. Stephen L. Miller hit the angle that a lot of people are hitting now. Cool. Strip them their salaries and benefits and give the money to grocery store workers. Because this has nothing to do with kids or COVID. It's politics. They just want to call it down. They want to close down forever so Trump looks horrible and Biden can get elected. But we've talked a million times. This COVID shit's going to go away with the bathwater. I had a liberal black guy in line. He was in his 70s. He believes all this Black Lives Matter stuff. Believes that white kids are now part of the movement because they've got an education on history. And I was like, well, we all had an education on history. There isn't a kid on the planet that didn't get to learn about civil rights and civil war and all this stuff. But we hired a black president twice. How could we be more racist? And he didn't have an answer for that. But he even agreed at the end. 
This is horseshit. It'll go away when Biden's president. They won't be playing these fuck fuck games. And there are a whole bunch of teachers out there. You don't want the job? Go the fuck home. So I put it on the end because the entire thing from liberals to conservative was go fuck yourself. Nurses had to go. Grocery store had to go. Cops had to go. Firemen had to go. There was all sorts of people. Garbage men were out picking up garbage. None of them died. Or at least you can't prove it. But there it is. So this wraps up another episode of Flyover Politic Podcast. Please feel free to share with family and friends. Send comments to F-O-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. FOP Podcast gmail.com. Get the show on SoundCloud, Pocket Static, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, Down, and Pocket Cast. Make sure you check out the Twitter account at FOP Tony Reed. Our next podcast will be Sunday. I'm going to try to go Sunday, Wednesday from now on. So that'll be August, or excuse me, to August, year of our Lord, 2020. Hope this was an enjoyable podcast. Try to have a little more organized, the new pewter. I've worked out the kinks and got this down. I thank Matt in Oregon for sending in, sending some uh, sound bites to me. Once again, this is a user-pushed one. So you got anything you tell me. Listens have been through the roof. More listens than I ever have. So just send an email to foppodcast at gmail.com. I'll cover whatever you want. Even if it's super liberal, I'll do it. Make sure you disconnect from all your devices. Don't give the yeah, yeahs. And as always, tune in next week. I thank you for listening. And take care. We're going to go out with System of the Down. Chop suey. Every day in Afghanistan, I played this song.
deserve to die